Welcome back to Darren and Andrew's trip through the 250. This independent movie reached number 23 on the list of the Internet Movie Database's top 250 movies of all time in April of 1996. Quentin Tarantino was 29 years old and working in a VHS store when he produced this pulpy, mammoth-esque cult favorite. It's Reservoir Dogs. Right now, the 250 just keeps on trucking. A classic of the early 90s. It's regarded as one of the most influential films ever made. Tarantino's Breakout. It was indeed. He'd written a couple of scripts beforehand. He'd written, for example, True Romance, which was directed by, um, obviously, Tony Scott. This is kind of what got Pulp Fiction done. Though. Made, yeah. And this, yeah. Is, this is a film that also completely changed the landscape in terms of independent filmmaking and distribution. In that this was the first hit that Miramax uh, produced. Miramax obviously went on to become the Weinstein Company and is currently embroiled in its own... Well, it's, it's been dissolved now as a result of the Harvey Weinstein allegations, but oh, it was... It? Has it not been dissolved yet? No, no. I, 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 I thought they declared I, it bankrupt. I, I don't follow uh, okay. uh, uh, studio news, Darren. So I, I'm saying, oh, has it... In okay. the sense of, oh, I didn't know. Oh, okay, sorry. But no, it, I, I take your word for it. <laughs> well, it, it definitely has filed for bankruptcy. Listeners um, of the 250 by now will know that the person they go to <laughs> for their studio gossip is is, is not me, but uh, Rodder. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, but this was the movie that helped breathe life into, into Miramax, into what would become the Weinstein Company and the cornerstone of the American independent cinema movement during the early 90s. So obviously this is a... What, what, what were they doing since the 70s, apart from the obvious? Well, I mean, think about it, though. How many truly independent movies outside the studio system can you think of as classics from the 80s? Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is probably one of the big ones outside the studio system. Were they doing movies, though? Oh, they were, ma- they were making movies. they were in the industry for a while. Oh, you mean Miramax, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hold on, I'll just drag up and see what Miramax were doing before the 90s. But this was... Let's celebrate them for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> we come not to bury them. Um, but don't worry, there will be plenty of burying. You're right, it was founded in 1979 by Bob and Harvey, uh, but during the 80s... Um, during the initial stage, yeah, there's just basically a, a long line. I love that their Wikipedia section has a, basically two sections. The first one is the independent era, which stretches from 1979 to 1993, which is like everything before Reservoir Dogs. Uh, that consists of, you know, they had a long, long history of distributing stuff like, say, the, the Secret Policeman's Ball, for example, which was a Milos Foreman film. Right. Um, which would have been distributed by Miramax, but it was a very small one. It was one that he did actually before he did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So it was actually distributed by Miramax years after it was actually released. Okay. Years after it was actually made. Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, films like, for example, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Oh, yes, by Pedro Almodovar. Yep. Uh, the Crying Game, which did would they be- distribute the other Almodovar movies? I don't know about before that. I don't so know they were, in the they 90s. they were making movies then? No, no, they're distributing. Um, and Scandal Sex Lies and Videotape is is another big one. That would have been probably their biggest one before uh, Reservoir Dogs. That's Steven Soderbergh's big breakthrough. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, they did have a little stuff. But then, obviously, with Reservoir Dogs... Cutting Edge kind of movie. Well, not Cutting Edge, but movies with an edge. Yeah, to them. Yeah. And what Reservoir Dogs did was it sort of enabled... It sort of made that edge mainstream. Like, it, it became movies that you would... that you would go to the cinema and you would see, like, you, that, that would draw attention and eventually garner Oscar prestige. So, for example, the, after this, they found Clerks, which was the Kevin 
Smith black and white movie, yeah. which is about a bunch of people sitting around talking, which is a movie that you can't imagine getting a distribution deal before Reservoir Dogs, which is not to get too spoilery, but a movie that opens with a scene of people sitting around talking. It's it was a movie that largely sort of pushed the. Was, was um, before Sunrise Miramax as well, uh, Linklater's um, movies. They, I know, is there? Those are kind of like sitting around talking movies. I suspect they were. Let me just double check and uh, confirm. To the fact machine. No, we're back from the fact machine. Um, They're actually produced by Castle Rock Entertainment and distributed by Columbia, which is the prestigious side of Sony. Well, I suppose they are. There is a lot of talking in them, but there's no edge whatsoever. (laughs) So um, I guess that it it doesn't meet the sort of Miramax Venn diagram. (laughs) Well, to be fair, Miramax also did stuff like Shakespeare in Love in the mid 90s. Like, I think the the crowning moment for Miramax, and again, this is if you're coming to praise them and not to bury them. Best picture is the best. Yeah, best picture for Shakespeare in Love, which is one of those dark voodoo, no one has any idea how they physically did that in a year that I think it was competing against like saving private ryan and uh yeah it, it just it somehow won it was it was a st- everybody was taken by surprise it was saving private ryan it was the thin red line um and there was another famous one out, out also as well in 1998 in many ways like you'd be generous if you put shakespeare in love as the second least likely to win uh, didn't tom stoppard have a have a major writing credit on uh, shakespeare, shakespeare in love. love he did indeed yeah yeah but again, it was seen as sort of a romantic comedy was, with Joseph Fiennes and Gwyneth Paltrow, who at that it, stage was... It had a lot of those kind of stuff parody and sort of lines. Like, uh, the show must... Go on! <laughs> but yeah, and again, you can sort of see the influence of, of sort of Tarantino's approach to the indie movie there. Like, Reservoir Dogs... You can kind of see the connection as as well, I suppose, from uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead to this uh, <laughs> much more... Um, commercial, conventional, uh, <laughs> uh, metafictional of, Shakespeare yeah. sort of comedy. Yeah, it's a lot less confrontational than Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah, um, a lot more comfortable. A lot one you could watch with your with your extended elderly relatives. Uh, complete yeah. with a, an Oscar winning performance from Judy Dench, who was only on screen for what eight minutes, seven minutes, something absurd like that. That's more crazy. That is, it's it's somehow again, it's it's even crazier. I mean, like a lot of people liked Shakespeare, and I think I did. Yeah, I, um, I quite like it. I think it's a charming movie. We're talking a lot about Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Love, love. aren't we? Yeah, we are. We're, we're doing the whole Miramax thing, though. At least this is more related than Richard Linklater. Yeah. I do like, though, that this is, you know, this is a Quentin Tarantino podcast. This is a mo- podcast about a Quentin Tarantino movie. So it makes sense that we would open the podcast talking about something completely unrelated to the subject of the podcast. So <laughs> let me tell you what Shakespeare and Love's really about, Andrew. Right? <laughs> it's about this guy, right? And, you know, he's been messed hey, around. He's one of those. Stoppard. Tom Stoppard. <laughs> no, wait. It wasn't Tom Stoppard. Why does he sound like, um, who, who is that meant to be? No, that, that's, uh, that's meant to be, what's his name? Lawrence Oh, Tierney. Lawrence Journey, yes. The uh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> it looks just like the thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit about Reservoir Dogs, because Reservoir Dogs is a movie that I, I adored, um, but then again... I'm quite partial to Tarantino. I know that there's a sort of a sense of a, you know, a, a back, I don't want to say backlash, but there's been a sense of like a sort of wariness in approaching Tarantino's work, a sense among certain critics and, and maybe certain audiences as well that Tarantino has a shtick and he plays into it and he definitely does. But a sense that he's sort of exhausted his potential to a certain extent. You can't criticise somebody under, under kind of 
almost first showing, though. Yeah, of, of that sort yeah, of thing. Of like, oh, he's doing that Tarantino <laughs> thing. That we didn't he know was a thing what, yeah, yeah. until several movies he, like, after this. Kind of watching, um, what's it called? A Few Good Men. And it's like, oh, so Sorkin. So Sorkin dialogue. I mean, like, these guys aren't even walking through corridors, but you can feel it, man. You can tell they want to. But yeah, I mean, I, I adore Tarantino. I actually... For a little while, this may even have been my favourite Tarantino film. I'm not sure at the moment, but I think... I think I've said on the podcast what my favourite Tarantino movie is. And then we'll and, and we'll find out if, if this has topped it. Because I had seen it before. Yeah. Just to be clear, I think uh, most people of our generation have seen it. Not to say that everyone has seen it, because like I don't want to be one of those people mm. who are like, Oh, what, you haven't seen this movie? What's wrong with you? They are the worst people. Um, so you mean you haven't seen? Anyway, but yeah, I, I would have a similar sort of thing. I would have a hard time remembering when I saw it. I know it was when I was in secondary school because I can remember the t- first time I saw um, Pulp Fiction. And I suspect I saw this after Pulp Fiction because I suspect Pulp Fiction was like a mind-blowing experience. And I was like, I need more of this in my life. So I suspect then I went back. I have memories of watching this on Channel 4. This feels very much like a movie that I... When was this? This would have been, what, 2002-ish? 2001-ish? Okay. Why? What are you thinking? So, no, like you're, you're kind of... Um, uh, 13, 14-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think... I, 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 I was not allowed watch movies like this growing up. Okay. Um, the, as, as in, like, um, I, I'd say if I, if I did watch it, it would pro- I would probably have had to have watched it, um, like, up... In, Surreptitiously, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it, this is interesting because I mean, I when I was younger, and I think we talked about this in the podcast before, but when I was younger, I had various competing perspectives about what movies were and were not acceptable for me to watch. So my grandparents were very much of the ah, he's a big, yeah, yeah, he's a big lad, he can take it. Let's make him watch The Shining when he's eight years old. Yeah. Um, and my parents, on the other hand, were a bit more strict. They were like, hey. Darren can't watch American Psycho when he's nine years old, but kids aren't reading enough these days. So get in the book and have him reading on holidays because that won't mess him up at all. <laughs> um, and, and so there was this sort of thing. But I feel like when I entered my teens, when I reached about 12, my parents were a lot more... I, and when I say trusting, it makes it sound like I sort of exploited that trust for my own sadistic purposes. But they were a lot more trusting in what I was allowed to watch and what I was allowed to consume. And the general attitude was that, you know, as long as, you know, I wasn't, doing something crazy like i don't know watching pornography or something like that it was generally fine that would be and crazy that would be crazy um but yeah the idea was that you know there were these movies that were made my parents i grew up in a household where not that my parents hold are, on sorry people people who watch pornography are crazy or parents who are permissive about pornography are crazy. parents who are permissive about like their teen boys watching pornography like porn whatever you watch in your own time is your own business I just feel like... Why are you looking at me? <laughs> Why do you say you? Yeah, accusatory. Why not one? Okay. Whatever one chooses to watch in their own, in one's own spare time um, is one's own business. But my, my thing is more along the lines of, I think that if you are a 12 or 13 year old boy watching excessive amounts of pornography, it may warp your worldview. I know this is very Darren Moral Panic Mooney here. I but... reckon it's probably um, from, like, I don't know very many parents... But like hearing like secondhand stories, it's generally around twelve or thirteen 
that they opened their computer one day and there's a whole lot of like <laughs> um, his history on it that hasn't been deleted. Yeah, um, that's one of the first things. Or that a window should... left open. Yeah, <laughs> I love how it's, are people that careless when they're like. It seems like this would be rudimentary, like you know, sort of basic. You are looking at pornography stuff. You do. You have like a control H for the history shortcut. You go in what, there. What? You right click. It's like yeah, no. You're a real master. I know. I'm, I'm a master beta, if you will. But yeah, the the argument. This our kids not like would. I would have thought that our generation, Andrew, in theory, is the first. Like we're the generation that grew maybe up the with one the just after us. Maybe, okay. maybe, maybe the kids who are twelve and thirteen now are are savvy. Yeah, um, but they private they, browsing. They probably get caught when they're like seven or eight. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> when they're inexperienced. Yeah, but yeah, like so. You know, I mean, it's not a moral judgment. Whatever you choose, whatever one <laughs> chooses to engage in in their own spare time. How did this happen? <laughs> yeah, is one's own business. But yeah, my parents this is just like a Tarantino. <laughs> it really podcast. is. But my my parents were basically they were very encouraging of my interest in film and stuff like that. So they would let me watch movies when the I the novelizations of porn yeah um, I'd be like well that that doesn't seem uh, biologically possible at all um, I question I question the anatomy in this sequence um, it's wh- like, why is everything always throbbing like uh, five or six pages long and, and then they have sex <laughs> and that's it that's the, the full end. stop the yeah. end yeah um, there are other adjectives beyond beyond pulsing as well but yeah the um, How did we get here? Yeah, this is a question. But anyway, so I, I remember watching... I don't remember watching it, but I remember having watched it in my early teens. It would have been after I saw Pulp Fiction. would have been when I was discovering or exploring Tarantino's backlog. Because I think that it was around the same time. I, again, I have... This is something Backlog's I... Backlog's a horrible... Back catalogue then, yeah. Uh, but I associate around the time... I associate with Film 4. I, the same way that I associate, say, oh, Jackie yeah. Brown. With film four as well, because I remember that one being an interesting one. Because I, I channel four, yeah, that's exactly channel four. Um, and I, I remember watching it and loving it. And I remember for a while liking it a great deal more than I liked Pulp Fiction. I always really liked Pulp Fiction, but this this sort of appealed to me in a way that you ever have that sort of strange thing with directors where you have an affection for their work that is in some ways the simplest work that they've done. So, like, Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest working directors, and I'm like, Cape Fear. I really like Cape Fear. And nobody's ever going to point to that and say that is the best Martin Scorsese film. Maybe maybe with Yojimbo and Kurosawa. That's would maybe that an example. Fair? That would probably yeah. be fair as well, I yeah. Think, I think that's how I feel. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of, it's, the, it's maybe the most accessible film of, of a director's work, but for a while, this was my favourite Tarantino film. Uh, because it's it's... And again, it's his first film as a director, which is an astounding accomplishment. It's one of his like first films Tarkovsky as a Tarkovsky and Stalker. Yeah, you know, like when somebody says, hey, <laughs> Stalker is my favorite Tarkovsky film. But yeah, it, it, it's his first film as writer and director. And it's very fully formed. It's very much a Tarantino film. But it's in many ways a lot simpler and a lot more straightforward than his later films. It's only like 95 minutes long. It's geographically very contained. Its character arcs are relatively simple. Its cheap. plot is very basic. Yeah, it was it was relatively cost effective. He was originally planning to shoot this for, I believe, 30 grand with a bunch of friends until... Harvey Keitel. 
That's it exactly. Yeah, until uh, basically one of his colleagues gave it to his acting teacher, I believe, and his acting teacher gave it to um, Harvey Keitel's wife. Harvey Keitel read Quentin it. Quentin Tarantino's acting teacher was it? Quentin Tarantino's acting teacher. Sorry, who's acting teacher? I thought it was one of Tarantino's friends' acting teacher. One of Tarantino's friends' acting teacher gave it to... Harvey Keitel's wife. This is like six degrees of separation, <laughs> but with Reservoir Dogs. And Keitel latched on it, thought it was fantastic. So he attached his own name as a producer, which allowed them to raise $1.5 million in funding. Get out a pen and write yeah, and sort of connect. on the front page. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like produced you've by got Harvey Keitel. Yeah, now you've got financing. Yeah. Um, he also paid, out, I believe, out of his own pocket for Tarantino to go to New York to do uh, testings and readings, which led to the hiring of actors Michael Madison, um, Tim Roth, ironically. Madsen. Michael Madison, apologies. Tim Roth, obviously, despite being English, was working in New York at the time. I don't know why I was Steve... correct the pronunciation. No, you're entirely correct. And Steve Buscemi as well, who would be one of those iconic New York actors. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it basically, it's, it's one of those, it's an incredibly indie movie. It's primarily shot inside a warehouse. It's very yeah. tight. It's very controlled. The plot is very simple in that it's, you know, spoils nothing to say that it's a story of what happens both in the lead up to and the aftermath of a spectacularly botched uh, jewelry heist. Um, and it, but it's it's fascinating. It's compelling. It's propulsive. It moves very well. It's got that Tarantino dialogue. It's got a bunch of actors being fantastic. It's got this wonderful tension that simmers throughout. It's got a lot of the calling cards and trademarks for both better and worse that you associate with Tarantino films, and they're all there from the beginning. They're not as developed as they are in say Pulp Fiction. The plotting isn't as intricate. The dynamics aren't as complex. Maybe even the themes are a little bit simpler. But it's got. A lot of the good stuff in inverted commas when it comes to Tarantino. You can see a through line between this and even something as heavily stylized as Django Unchained or the Kill Bill movies. You can see how a director got from here to there, which is remarkable in a in a first film to have that confidence of vision. Yeah, I mean in in term in terms of the way he 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 writes, it has obviously a lot in common with with his with his later work. You can still see the true lines and also with his um kind of um earlier work in term in terms of his themes i think it's quite different and we 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 won't we won't talk about them yet until we get to the other yeah. side well i mean in, in that case then i guess the only thing left to do is to ask well first of all do you think it belongs on the 250 andrew would it be on your own personal 250 and would you recommend if somehow pe- people have, haven't seen this yet i'm going to be that obnoxious guys like well, if you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs yet. But if uh, somebody listening to this podcast has not had a chance to watch Reservoir Dogs yet, should they go out and watch it? Yeah, I mean, um, if you've money left over after, like, you know, uh, taking care of the essentials, like kind of, you know, uh, food, clothing. Um, <laughs> if you have a little left over for some leisure time. You'd There's like, no you'd, judgment on the 250. You'd like to watch a, a, a great movie. I, I would recommend this. As a, a a great movie, I would I would say that it's maybe a a bit of a a bit of a bummer. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, care, careful in 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 what in what in what state you 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 watch it. Uh, but if if I mean it's 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 quite violent as well. I think people. We're familiar with Tarantino are, are probably well aware and don't need to be told. It's worth noting that this. 
we'll talk maybe a bit about more about the violence on this other side of the spoiler zone, but this was famously controversial at the time for its use of language, um, in particular, like, yeah. first of all, what, what he does with verbiage, but also the use of the swear words and, and particularly, like, racially charged language and terminology. Oh, yeah. But it was also uh, famous in terms of violence, the point where there were walkouts when this was screened at various film festivals. Wes Craven walked out of a screening of this because he found one of the film's most infamous sequences to be incredibly visceral and disturbing. And what's... What? Yeah, Wes Craven, the guy behind Nightmare on Elm Street and, and, you know, all those other films, like Scream and stuff like that, thought that this this was too much, which is remarkable. But at the same time, re-watching it now, and I mean, even when I was watching it in the late 90s, or even when I was watching around 2000-ish, what I found interesting is I... I never quite got the... I never thought it was absurdly violent. I thought it was violent. I thought it was vicious. I thought it was bloody. But it never well, seemed... we had seen it all. That's it, exactly. We, we'd sort of grown up in the aftermath of it. Um, and also, you know, our lives. Our, our lives. Our real lives. Yeah. Andrew, but... we, know, we know that bloodstained shirts don't look like that. So it... it... It just it, sort of, it takes us out of it. Yeah. And we feel okay. Yeah. It's like, it's not like that time. Yeah, that, we don't really talk about that, though. No. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 I feel like, yeah, we were the generation that grew up in the wake of these movies. So, it's weird that they're not, they don't, they never, they never provoke that level of disgust that you, you read about. And you go back and you read the initial reviews, like you read Ro- Roger Ebert's review, for example. And there's this sort of, and, and to be fair, Ebert was a, was a writer and a critic who was particularly sensitive to portrayals of violence in American pop culture, and perhaps justifiably so. But you read a lot he of... He quite the... liked Robocop. Yeah, well, I think he, he quite liked satire, and he was very fond of sort of, like, subversion and deconstruction. He didn't like the second. And this yeah. is more like the second Robocop movie. He also didn't like yeah. Die Hard. He thought Die Hard was gratuitous uh, in its use of violence yeah. as well. Um, which is, is, again, it's a movie that is now considered like a classic and a family-friendly well, I film. I agree with him. I, uh, like I, and in to 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 an extent, if 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 you think about it in terms of like, okay, put put movies that have gr- gratuitous violence in 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 one box, and then um, put movies that don't have gratuitous violence in another. You 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 could look at Die Hard and say yeah, that probably belongs in in, <laughs> in, in the first box. Yeah, I mean, and then, there, there, like there is and a, to be fair, there's a discussion that needs to take place, particularly with regards. And we talked about this in the podcast before, in say the way that discussions of of popular culture in the states are, in that there's a a weird tendency to dismiss concerns about violence and brutality in popular culture as compared to like things like bad language or sexual nudity. content nudity yeah and it, it's a really odd double standard because like it, it it's weird like and again not to get too political or anything like that, but the discussion about the the access hollywood tape with trump the big argument seemed to be about whether or not the american network should broadcast the tape which includes the word pussy rather than the description of the sexual assault that actually took place there's this weird sort of almost puritanical vibe that runs through it. We're showing yeah, a nipple. That's where the, the, um, the um, I guess, settlers of America in, in, in the United States are the, the 13 colonies. Of, of course, the Spanish were there first in Florida. But we're, we're, when, when, when we think of the English-speaking peoples who arrived in, in, in what's now the United like States, yeah. there, um, there's a kind of a puritanical quality um, to it to to them and then um um along with that there's the um 
kind of um, gun uh, rights in the constitution. So you can't you, uh, you can't go after um, you can't you can't be too critical of of, um, of, gun of guns in yeah. in in movies. And then and then there's the um, I suppose start, starting with the with is it the Spanish War of eighteen twelve. Okay. Or no, no, no. Sorry, I'm um, not that one. The one that McKinley fought in, which, which, which kind of starts this um, slow turn um, of America away from isolationism and into kind of some idea of oh yeah, yeah. of empire. Yeah. Um, like taking Cuba and the Philippines. Yeah. So it would have been and, around eighteen ninety something, yeah. right? And then and and when 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 you have a like not to get too. But yeah, when you have a military-industrial complex, you need to make movies that stoke or, or yeah, sort of play yeah. into, into. And while that. this isn't something that's going to get somebody to go <laughs> off and and join the Green Berets, um, it, it's um, it's a it's a violent movie, and and the the censors can't have too much of a problem with that, yeah, because the CIA have a program to <laughs> well, like this isn't like conspiracy theory stuff. This is like pe- people like Ben Affleck spending time in Langley, being like shown around, and um, and, and I mean we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, but, but it's a it's it's it's, it's a it's a whole thing okay. um, where 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 the CIA um, wants a certain poor portrayal of the army and of. The um, intelligence services in movies. Oh yeah, this is the thing where they is, grant access, you know, in yeah. return for favorable portrayals and stuff Absolutely. like that. And, and they uh, provide we, supplies and we, stuff. We and, we would balk at uh, Putin <laughs> doing something like this, but um, yeah. But and 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 you see it across all of the kind of like services yeah. in 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 Top in the, Gun and the Air States. Force and stuff like, like that. Like the new Godzilla movie, there are like bomb disposal um, experts. You 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 yeah. Top Gun is the most obvious one. You've got even movies about the Coast Guard, like, <laughs> starring that's the Guardian with uh, yeah. what's his name with um, uh, Kevin Costner. Exactly. I, I do love the idea though of like organized crime going and sort of sponsoring a Tarantino movie. It's like you know we're going to recruit. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> People are going to learn that diamond heists are just great fun. They really yeah, are. Even, bring the even, whole family together. Even though even though those sorts of recruiting movies are generally quite soft, you can't. Um, you you do need to have a double standard about violence because violence is necessary for the um, American project, uh, and, and and what I'm talking about is very hawkish, yeah. um, kind of voices within um, the United States. I'm not saying that the whole. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, we're not casting a journalist person. No, um, to be absolutely clear. But anyway, so sorry. So, so I guess that answers the question about should you go out and watch this? If uh, I beg your pardon. But uh, do you, do you think it belongs on the two fifty, and would it be on your personal two fifty? Um, yes, I think it belongs on the two fifty. It's not. It, it wouldn't. It probably wouldn't be on my uh, uh, two fifty. Even though I I I I accept that it's great. It's just not kind of. The 250 movies that I would bring to a desert island. Yeah. You know? I can see that. I mean, it would probably make mine, although, again, this is the question of how many Tarantino movies do you need on the list and how many could you cut? Because there are, I think, currently five films on the list there from Tarantino, which means we're almost through our, our sort of our Tarantino binge at this point, which is remarkable. 
We're more than halfway there, Andrew. And he wants to make 10, but not all 10 are on the... On the 250. There have been a number that have dropped Kill Bill off. Kill 2? Kill Bill 1 is on. Kill Bill 2 is blocked. Kill, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Kill, yeah. Kill Bill 2 isn't on it. Jackie Brown Jackie isn't. Brown isn't on it either, yeah. for example. And Hateful Eight isn't on it. Yeah. Um, which is, is a shame, because I think they're also interesting movies. Um, but yeah, I mean, this would be up there among my Tarantino films. I still have a very, very, very soft spot for it. And if I weren't at all concerned about stuff like, well, you know, you could probably do something with those spaces that would be interesting. It would definitely be on there. I mean, it's certainly how there's an argument for it in terms of its influence as an independent movie, in terms of its influence on how you script movies. I think that a lot of modern dialogue and conversation and the use of uh, those sort of scenes in modern movies can trace their roots back to the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs. Well, those, those sorts of things, like, I, I really enjoy in this movie it's just that um the kind of tone i guess of 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 the movie or the the the, the kind of outlook the, perhaps yeah the outlook yeah is I keep is, it ambiguous yeah is, is is not something that I, that i that i really enjoy this is this is not a very this isn't a feel good movie yeah. you should know oh don't worry we're going to talk about this on the other side of the sports zone with that in mind i don't think there's any uh, any reason to wait so we're going to let k billy super sound the 70s take us into the spoiler zone spoiler zone so andrew what is Reservoir Dogs about for you? I feel like I actually have an answer this time. Ooh. Yeah. I, 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 Sorry, I shouldn't have been so surprised. Andrew, you have an answer every time I ask you. <laughs> I have to struggle and I'm surprised that you've asked, even though you ask it every time. Uh, for me, it's kind of about um, the nature of memory and about truth and uh, reality and, and what, what, what um, I suppose what things mean. Um, to be very vague, but there, there's, 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 and also whether or not we can ever truly understand another human being. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, but well, people can't even understand themselves or or, or recall things. Yeah, because like you, you, you find it over and over again in the movie. Like in 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 the start when Joe is going through his his book. And he's he's he's. Who's uh, Tina? What's Tina? Tina 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 Chung, and then at at the same time you have this disagreement is going on between different interpretations of 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 the of, song like a virgin, for example, yeah. and also the role of tipping in society and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, pe- people can't really kind of um, uh, agree on 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 the way like things ought to be or the way things are. Yeah. Um. Or, or or what this means, or 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 who this person is in 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 this book, or is 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 it this person, or is it that person, or is it Jackie Chan? Yeah. Um. And um. And I mean, you're right that it happens throughout. I mean, they even have the argument who played the female cop when they're discussing yes. whatever. Yeah. There are these points in the movie where characters go off on tangents to discuss whether or not these things are what they appear to be. There's yeah. This it's one- like who who's the who's the who's the rat. Yeah. Um, and it's like maybe 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 it's you, yeah. um, and and it's like maybe it's you, and it's like there you go now 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 you have it, yeah. and they, they yeah when when they're talking about uh, Pam Greer and E Lois, um, you're 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 quite right they they can't kind of figure out 
who these who these people are, but these are all sort of so-called memories yeah. and have, shared memories so un, as well, uh, unreliable. And and they're they're they don't really have like a they have some sort of shared reality, but it's very kind of illusory. And it it, it seems to kind of and there's there's a lot of kind of nostalgia in in the movie as well. They have the like the super sounds of the seventies, and they're talking about like all of these old shows. And there's the Silver Surfer comic in 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 the kind of yeah, about, even about, Lawrence Cherney talking about Dillinger, for example. Yeah, and stuff exactly. Like, that. like there's very consciously like aspiring towards. We're the talking cast. about like seventies um, Hong Kong um, yeah. uh, kung fu movies. Yeah, and they're like. A, a, a few guys about to rob a jewelry store, and they're all they're all, and and he's talking about the song, and he's like, "I didn't realize that she was the one who killed him." And it's like, "Oh, how would you not realize that?" It's like I le- I listened to the song loads of times. I must have just blanked out. Yeah, it's like his memory of it was always incomplete. Yeah, um, and it seems so. It's it, for me, it kind of all amounts to that. <laughs> That nothing really means anything, a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, in 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 in, in the sense that that um, like you can have your 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 sort of say say you have motives, right? And these motives come from certain kind of beliefs that you have that might be based on a situation. Yeah. What if you completely misremember that situation or yeah. misinterpreted what was happening well, and what people meant? Or what, what if they, your assumptions yeah. about that situation are wrong? Like, there's a the great moment where even, like, in relation to the plot of the movie, right? Tarantino makes a conscious choice not to show us the robbery that drives so much of the plot. We follow the characters leading up to the robbery. We even get to see some of them in the immediate aftermath trying to escape the scene of the robbery. But we don't see the robbery itself. The only real indication we get of what happened is a scene between Mr. Pink and Mr. White, who basically argue about what happens. And they're trying to remember. There's this discussion about, like, remembering yeah. the sequence of events and, and like mis- the police were there and it's uh, like oh no they they were there but we didn't see them until after yeah. the shot no it was no. before the shot no no and Mr. White is like yeah. it's, it's as soon as they hit the alarm the police showed up Mr. Pink is like no 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 they, they hit the alarm then Mr. Blonde started shooting people then yeah. they showed up it's like so they weren't there before no they were there before we just didn't see them and you have this big debate about what actually like, happened what? by two guys who were physically there less than an hour ago and then it's like was Blonde a complete psychopath or a uh, like we we we, we kind of get an answer to that one yeah yeah but but if, if for for the point of view of nice guy Eddie yeah he um he's he's not um convinced yeah. and and we as an audience aren't 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 really certain well we have it from white and we have it from pink yeah. but that actually remains to be, to 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 be seen like blonde gives his 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 account that like oh they um, I asked them not to set off the alarms. They set off the alarms. If they didn't do, if they didn't have done what I told them not to do, then they'd still be alive. Um, I love Tarantino's way with dialogue. Um, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, I love the forward and back between white and blonde. I said, do we want to talk a little bit about the well, kind of plot? Well, let's talk about or, the, the memory stuff. Or do we want to talk right? about? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the memory stuff because I think this is this latches onto something, which is Tarantino. And do you think that's is that what it's about for you? It, I never asked you that question. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> it, it's one of the things that it's about. I think it's about a whole host of other stuff as well. But that is one of the things that I really sort of latched onto um, about it is this idea of it being a 
about how the world is a cacophony of voices, all shouting, competing in different things. None of them you can be objectively sure are correct or true or real. There's a great line where, you know, Mr. Mr. Bond and, sorry, Mr. White and Mr. Pink are arguing about who the possible rat is, if there even is a rat at all. Yeah. And, you know, Mr. White is nice like... Nice guy coming in and saying there isn't a rat. Yeah. And then Mr. Mr. Blonde, sorry, Mr. White is like, you know, it couldn't have been Joe. I, I know Joe way back. It, it couldn't possibly have been him. Yeah. And the Mr. Pink. officer is like, I don't know anything. Yeah. I swear to God, I don't, um, I don't, I don't know, uh, I don't know a thing. They don't tell me anything. That's and, not true. No, that's That's not. a crazy thing. Yeah. Is that he against all odds which is the truest sounding thing in the movie and then it turns out to be a complete fabrication because it turns out that he does know Freddy who is Mr. Orange who's undercover but there's a line where Mr. Pink is like look I know Joe as well but I can't say that he's not a rat I can't say that I can you know I can tell you that I'm not a rat but I can't say that about anybody else because I don't definitely know and there's the idea throughout the film that other human beings and other individuals are fundamentally unknowable to one another. The people are basically the same as strangers. And it's most obvious in the case of Mr. White and Mr. Orange. Mr. White, who risks everything for Mr. Orange, who, you know, keeps him safe, who tends to him, who protects him, who later on at the climax of the film murders Joe, who he's known since he was a child, and kills Joe's son, Eddie, um, in large part as, to protect Mr. Orange because he believes that Mr. Orange isn't a rat because he believes that Mr. Orange is this kid who he's gotten to know who's charming who's funny who's like coming up who's a criminal who's like risked his life who got shot who's dealing with this gunshot wound who's hardworking who's honest except Mr. Orange is an undercover cop he's yeah. been lying to Mr. White this whole time and now he realises the unknowable yeah. at the end when he learns the truth yeah, and, and the, the final shot of the film is close on Mr. White as he's got a gun to Mr. Orange's head and he pulls the trigger and then he gets shot by the cops and that's that's the end of the film. I, that's a moment of knowability. It's I, also worth pointing out, like, Mr. Blonde as well is unknowable, as you pointed out. Is he a psychopath? Is he not? He's a stranger to all of them before they go on the job. They don't know anything about him, but it turns out, hey, that he, as far as they're concerned, he is a psychopath. If I'd known that about him, I never would have taken the job. Is a line from Mr. White. Yeah. But and then, and then there's um, there's this weird, weird weird thing when Pink is like, "Oh, you see him on the level." Well, no, you're definitely on the level. Yeah. As in, you can't be the rat. Yeah, which is fantastic. <laughs> I know you're definitely not the rat. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but there, there's another thing as well. I guess, like, if you were to point to this um, movie, perhaps. Um, if you were if you were to make an argument against this being nihilistic, you could say that this movie is making a point about the pointlessness specifically of violence, because there there there. I, I yeah I I don't think it's I don't think it's nihilistic. I don't think that's yeah. a fair summary. I mean, just the, can the, we before we before we move on though, in terms of memory, right? It's worth noting that one of the things Tarantino does, which is quite clever and quite wry. Is that like repeatedly throughout the film, he shows you flashbacks of various characters and how they came into certain situations. So when Mr. Pink shows up at the, um, at the, at the warehouse, you get a quick introduction of how he escaped the crime scene, which is him running from the cops, him hijacking a woman, th- pulling her out of the car of a window, shooting at a bunch of cops and winging a couple of them and driving off. And that, 
leads you to believe that he may not be the rat, for example. And later on, you get to see, you know, Mr. Bond having a conversation with Joe and Eddie in which he gets invited into this sort of thing after serving time in prison. So you get a bit of background there. But what's interesting is with Mr. Orange's flashback, you get this wonderful shift within Tarantino's flashback where flashback to Mr. Orange learning the story about the drug deal, right? Yeah. And within that, right, he's telling this story. It's like a joke. He has to remember the details of the story. He has to recite it. And it's like, and this becomes your own story as well. You're talking about like how um, memory gets rewritten each time you tell it. Yeah. And there's, there's also, and, and then when, when they're, when he's telling the story, they're interrogating about the story as well. Yeah. So there, um, he's he's like, oh, what was the guy in um, what was the guy in prison for? Yeah, why did he ask you to bring the why do you ask you to yeah, bring the drugs? Wh- why did you go to the bus station? Yeah, but I mean, and and this is the thing where the guy who's teaching Mister Orange the story is like, this story is about you and your perspective of how events went down, and it's got to be the story has to be so real to Mister Orange that he can sell it to somebody else, and it becomes so real in the context of the film that you actually get a flashback, right? You get a flashback within the flashback of Mr. Orange's story, cutting to the joke within the rehearsal sequence, which illustrates that this story that he's constructed has become as subjectively real to him, that he can picture the restroom and the camera can go with him into it, spin around, study the cops, cut to the barking dog, and it's just as authentic as Mr. Pink running from the police officers. It's just as authentic as Mr. White stealing the car. It's just as authentic as Mr. Blonde having the meeting with Eddie and Joe. It's within the world of the film, even the memories that the audience sees, which are normally like an objective, verifiable fact become subjective and distorted. This memory is verifiably unreal. It's false. But it's presented to the audience as an objective. But every memory is 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 kind of unreal to an yeah. extent. Because it's it it's it's re it's it's ideal as opposed to real. Yeah. So you're you're creating an idea of something that's quite different from a real thing. Yeah. Well this is um, a philosophical thing. It's yeah. a, memory's also very emotive as well. It's connected more to emotion. If you believe in a distinction, I guess. Yeah, between the <laughs> idea of a thing and a thing. And it's questionable whether or not this movie does at all. I think is it worth suggesting and again I don't want to go down the tangent of like, you know, Forrest no, Gump is a very nineties film. But yeah, this is the, as um it I mean, in the sense in the sense of kind of the the whole kind of uncertainty seem very kind of nineties uh, or, or they're all kind of arguing about very sort of um, arbitrary, like inconsequential things, things. Yeah. Rather than about um, <laughs> the gr- work they're important doing. Important things like, um, you know, the, the, the great kind of uh, battles of ideas of the cold war are. Yeah. I mean, this is, well, this... not that like, but you know what I yeah. mean? I like... felt like it's making a point about like, how meaningless how meaningless yeah. the 90s could seem because i mean the opening scene is a cacophony of voices having different conversations across from one another like you know uh joey and sorry joe and and mr white are having a conversation about the book mr pink is having an argument with several other people at the table about tipping at the same time mr blue is waxing lyrical about you know like a virgin and they're all having different conversations while nominally having the same conversation with each other and it's this big cacophony of voices where it's no longer a structured and 
regimented arguments, no longer a structured debate. And even within the context of the film, you have the sequence where they're planning the heist. And it's interesting that, like, Tarantino... Tarantino makes a heist movie where the heist is arguably the least important part of it. It's more about the character dynamics and the discussions around it. So, for example, in the sequence where they're planning the heist, you don't actually get, like, that sequence in, say, Baby Driver, which it reminds me of, where you have the board in the background. he has the board in the background. Yeah, and he has, like, the... He just doesn't use it. Yeah, or or the film doesn't... You better, he's like, you better all shut up and stop joking. You'll be, That's it exactly. you'll be in San Quentin thinking, uh, how'd I get, how, how I get here? And then it's because I gave you, <laughs> I had a long argument with you about what your colors were. Yeah. And we never actually got to discuss what the plan was. Yeah. Got it? And there's a certain... All right, let's start. Yeah. You're Mr. White. You're Mr. Pink. Because I said so. (laughs) But there is this sort of this sense that like within the world of Reservoir Dogs, what is important has been forgotten or brushed aside. And instead you're focusing on a whole host of pointless, tiny arguments that have no greater meaning and that have no greater point or no greater structure. And it in many ways like reflects... If we learn, the thing is, well, if we learn, and I I think this, sorry, but this relates as well to what I think is the other kind of point about the movie. If we knew all of those things, it wouldn't matter anyway. Yeah. Like if we if we knew what the what their plan was and what the um, what the plan for the police was like from the beginning, and if we knew all the intricacies of it, uh, intricacies of it, it wouldn't matter. Would it change anything? No, yeah. no, nothing kind of uh, worked out well for anybody. Yeah. And I mean, even even within that, there's also like the the broader like the thing about the 90s was you had this whole question of what was the purpose of of where we are. Like, you know, after the end of the Cold War, you no longer had, as you pointed out, the great war of ideas, but the regimented structure where you could say, look, we exist in opposition to communism. We are very much about individualism, about liberty. What are we about now that we've vanquished, vanquished Russia? Like, what are the big debates of our time? Is it about the meaning of like a virgin? And like, there's a sense that, you know, to a certain extent that might tap into... about for you, Darren? That is a question. Yeah, well, I mean... That is the big thing. And that's like a lot of... It runs through the whole seam of 90s culture. And I think you can trace it from here through to stuff like, say, The Matrix, Dark City, The Truman Show, etc. Through shows like The X-Files, um, all that sort of stuff. But I think that Tarantino speaks to that. Because Tarantino... I can't imagine Tarantino working in the 70s or the 80s. Because a bunch of people look at his scripts and go, what are these about? Yeah. Like, what What are these yeah. films saying? What's I, suppose the, I I I tend to prefer movies that are... Like... like, like if, but th- like this movie is about something, but it, it it kind of it can be unsatisfying in in in. I don't think it's I don't think it's um, the point about memory. I don't think it's like a uniquely nineties thing. But the, but the whole idea of the 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 loss of of meaning from the loss of opposition is yeah. Uh, well, not the- not not that that's in it, but the loss of meaning kind of certainly yeah. is is hinted at. But the the whole idea what? of, of like kind of me- memories r- reminded me a bit of um, there was Malcolm Gladwell was talking about uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace. Sorry, Darren. No, sorry. I was just going to say in I'll, terms I'll, of I'll like go back the, to it. No, we'll, we'll jump back to it a second. But just in terms of the loss of memory being a very nineties thing, it 
it strikes me in a lot of 90s material that I've covered. So, for example, the Star Trek shows and the X-Files and stuff like that. That loss of memory is often tied to the passing from living memory of issues like the Second World War and the Holocaust, which are particularly important to American self-identity. And obviously in the 90s are reflected in stuff like Holocaust denial in a sense. Like, so I don't think Tarantino was sitting down going, I think Reservoir Dogs is going to be the best movie ever made about Holocaust denial. But I think that you can tie the two of those themes together in that like the Second World War through the Cold War was a defining moment in terms of purpose for America. And you had that thread that runs through American culture, like from the greatest generation that provides a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. And that sort of gets muddied when you go through the 70s and you have Vietnam and you have Watergate and stuff like that. He did write his World War II denial movie. (laughs) To be (laughs) very... To define what actually (laughs) happened. (laughs) In the Second World War. Um, Well, I mean, even Tarantino does go back to the Second World War, even before obviously Inglorious Bastards. He went back to it in his script for true romance which also had like a fictionalized account of that that sort of second world war being written about donowitz or whatever but i think that there is something in that sort of connection of the thread of memory and the connection of the thread of meaning to the point where like at, in 1994 i think it was you had this big argument about say the smithsonian like having an exhibit about the enola gay and there was this argument about like they as part of the exhibit they asked the question was it moral to drop the atomic bomb on Japan? That's all they asked. They didn't provide any answer or any judgment. But the mere fact that in 1994, the Smithsonian put up an exhibit that asked the question was seen as a betrayal of meaning and a betrayal of memory. It became this huge front in the culture war. And sort of, I think it speaks to, in the 90s, that sort of uncertainty that you're talking about. The uncertainty of, of meaning due to lack of opposition, but I think the uncertainty of memory, because you have the slipping from memory of living memory of, of the Second World War and of even the Holocaust, for example. But anyway, sorry, you were talking about Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, yes, yeah. No, sorry, let's go off on a tangent. He has a, um, of course, the, this... A few months ago, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, like, at the moment. But, yeah, when you're listening to this. So, uh, a while ago, his Revisionist History podcast, he had a series of two um, podcasts about memory um, and kind of how unreliable it is. And he's talking about kind of um, a little bit about telling tall stories and about how it's not kind of like um uh, ego led it's it's just something that um that happens and that it becomes as true as the truth for you subjectively he um and he 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 relayed on this um i think it's war and peace where there is a soldier relating on his stories from the war and he was kind of behind the lines and he can see his aud- that he's starting to lose his audience so what he starts to relate is stories he had heard from... Secondhand um, from other people. Yeah, yeah. F- secondhand from other people who were on the front lines and did see uh, more action than he had. He was he started out telling a story that he thought was interesting, saw that they lost interest, then decided to embellish it. And there's a line along the lines of, and he felt the truth start to slip away from him. As in, the, the, the truth... He, like won't be able to access the truth anymore because what has replaced that is a different version of the story that is now his, um, his version of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll talk a little bit about more, the morality of the film a bit later on because I think you mentioned that earlier. But just in terms of memory, there's also an interesting theme that... The, the, sorry, just to, if, yeah. if that seems like too much of a tangent, it, it's 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 that the... Um, the story uh, about the drug deal, isn't it? Exactly. The story of the drug deal kind of reminded me of it. Yeah, and I think that the... 
in terms of there's also like tying back to that story about the drug deal right there's this recurring theme and it's a theme that tarantino is absolutely fascinated with throughout his work and we talked a little bit about it when we talked about django um, and we talked a little bit about it when we talked about inglorious bastards as well it's this idea of performance it's this idea of you know the world is literally a stage in fact there's a moment when tim roth or when mr orange is rehearsing that story for his yeah. handler where he's literally standing on a stage a graffiti covered stage in los angeles yeah so, and it's a, it's a very dramatically ironic way of talking about memory. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, there's the conversation where, you know, the, the, the handler says it's the details that sell the story. Yeah. And you can tell that it's that's like... like you've like, got to be Marlon Brando. Yeah. These are two people in a movie yeah. talking, uh, uh, coaching each other about how to deliver lines. Yeah. There's a sense that Tarantino is in some way writing about his own writing style as well. And he's like, the details sell the story. It's like, this is a story that consists of nothing but details. Mm. There's, there's very little actual plot. There's there's just details. And he, he, he really is an actor's um, director. Like, uh, that's that's not a, a new thing to say. Yeah. But, but it makes sense in this context because of, like, how he's, like, kind of going through the lines and kind of having this whole kind of uh, focus on the actors where you would be thinking kind of, like, isn't the director's perspective a director's perspective? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, why is he showing this um, uh, actors having um, this conversation I mean and it's similar it's worth noting that the first voice you hear on Reservoir Dogs is Tarantino himself Mm. as Mr. Blue having this conversation that's completely unrelated to anything that's going on it is interesting and we'll probably talk a little bit about this because obviously it's a Tarantino movie so it has a very awkward relationship with race but one of the lenses through which it has been discussed in terms of race is this idea of performance and this idea of performative masculinity and of performative, like a lot of his characters talk like African-American characters. They use African-American verbal English is how it's described. But the, the issue is, and for example, Jason Reitman, when he did a stage reading. Joe actually calls them out on it as well. And yeah, well, Joe is Joe's interesting character because Joe is old school. Joe is old school. Joe exists like Joe looks like he wandered in of an, out from an older movie. He's talking about like and he and he pretty much did. He 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 was like um, he is a piece of nostalgia yeah. like the seventies music in yeah. this movie. Well, he's Lawrence Tierney. Like yeah. there's a moment where he says, you know, you'll end up dead like Dillinger. Lawrence Tierney's first big role was playing Dillinger. The movie's mm. quite acutely aware of that. So there's something very telling in in he was having in these him. TV shows as yeah. well, kind of like that. That um, um, it was, so uh, like it, it was it was a big guess. Yeah. For uh, Tarantino, he's probably more excited about Tierney than he was for Keitel. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is saying something, given Keitel raised like 1.5 million dollars <laughs> for a budget. But there is this sort of conversation that takes place where Tierney is basically complaining about all this newfangled, meaningless stuff, where he's like, you kids, keep it down there. Um, stop having this conversation. I can't hear myself think. Um, and it's, it's something very interesting in the way that, like, that the character of Joe is used as almost like a counterpoint to this very sort of modern approach that Tarantino's taking. But in terms of the use of African-American English, which is controversial, and we'll probably need to talk about in a bit more depth uh, in a moment. When you say African-American English, do you mean uh, English that African-Americans use or English that people use to talk about African-Americans? Um, it's, I think it's described as A-A-V-E, um, the, the acronym. It's the, the description of English as it is used by African-Americans. So the words okay. that they use and, and that sort of stuff are the words that are associated with it. So uh, I don't know, like, again. It, 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 and this is within a um, 
con- temporary kind of. Oh yeah, this um, is in a modern lens. lens. This, this is Ta- talking about cultural appropriation. This is it exactly. Um, black English, known as black English in North American linguistics. Um, so for example, that sort of stuff where you drop a where you drop a verb or whatever you uh, you just drop in a comparison stuff like that. But it's or you drop sorry a syllable stuff like that. But it's very much. Tarantino is appropriating that and it's it's quite candid and he's quite explicitly appropriated that and it's become a point of, of discussion of his work and stuff like that. It's interesting that the only black character in the film is the one who coaches Tim Roth. Yeah. Um, he's the only African-American character in the film and it has been suggested in some readings of Tarantino's work that his his comparison, his use of, say, the N-word, for example, his, his, his use of that sort of dialogue um, is particularly... It's in some ways. But they're not using it the way African Americans would. They're talking. They're 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 talking. Um, they're they're talking. Um, they're using it as a racial epithet. Me too. They're, they're using it interchangeably with 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 other epithets. Like the the uh, Joe uses. Like I, f- I feel bad even saying it. Um, yeah. it, it, it says things like. Um, and you're acting like a bunch of n-words or whatever that sort of thing no but he, he, he interchangeably with things like jungle oh yes 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 yeah, yes yeah. Uh, monk yeah yeah um yes yeah yeah yes. and 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 yeah at some point in the movie i wouldn't surprise I, me it, I, I, yeah i i know that there were a number of them anyway so it's not like it's not like they're using black english they're talking about blacks in 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 a very um, unguided way. I would have thought that that would be the thing that problem that people would have is 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 that they're is not that they're appropriating English. It's that they're being racially insensitive and abusive. All right. Well, to be fair, the argument was primarily in relation to say the character of Drex, Drexel in uh, True Romance. But the argument's also been made in relation to how the characters talk in Reservoir Dogs. But the the argument is well, the, the only example of that is Madsen, where he's talk he's talking about how he would make nice guy Eddie his his, his prison. <laughs> and Joe was saying then like uh, that's uh, that's 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 like we're 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 taking kind of Tarantino lines and putting them in our own, <laughs> making them PG thirteen. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's this like is like something the airline African American would say something that you would hear in like a yes, this is like the airplane version of these conversations. Yeah, but so the, 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 um, I don't I don't know if that's if there's that like you can correct me, but I don't think there's that many examples of I I think I know what you mean in True Romance, but I don't think there's that mm-hmm. much appropriation of. I mean, I mean, there's of African speech in this. Okay. Um, I think there's an accusation of it from 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 Joe, but I think for the most part, there's um, a, a a lot of kind of just racial um, yeah. slurs yeah. Ag- 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 against um, African Americans, which is which is not uh, which is not something that is a part of African American English, with the possible yeah. exception of the N word that can. Be I used. suppose be reclaimed. Yeah. 
So no, I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't agree with that. Okay. Well, I mean the the argument is that, for example, uh, Jason Reitman did a stage reading of this, and we'll include a link in the show notes, where he recast all the characters as black, with the exception of the officer who teaches, who coaches Mister Orange, who is played by Patton Oswalt, for example, and stuff like that, and how that sort of changes the context of various discussions and various uh, the use of various language. And you're right that the N word is a large part of that. But the argument is that Scorsese, at the same time came into a bit of controversy for his use of the N-word and racial slurs in his own gangster film. So, for example, Goodfellas and stuff like that. And the argument was that while Scorsese... It's, it's a strange one, because are, are you... Um, you're saying he shouldn't use... He shouldn't use that kind of language in movies. Well, one is saying. Well, well, it, so one is saying... <laughs> one Is one saying that one should, shouldn't use that sort of language in movies? Because I can think of one good reason why one shouldn't. Um, is that it kind of normalizes it. Yeah. I can think of one good reason why people sh- uh, should or could be excused for using that kind of language in movies is that it's the way people speak. Yeah. Like it or not. And it's it's um, and it's also and again this will be you 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 have a whole lot of guys robbing a, a jewelry a, store a, and ju- shooting police officers house. and they, don't consider police officers to be real people. Yeah. They're not moral exemplars. Um, to be honest. But yeah, the argument though is that like Scorsese, when he uses the N-word, he treats it as an example of how Italian Americans and Irish Americans, or this is the argument anyway, is that when Scorsese has his characters use the N-word, he uses it to show how his communities, which are traditionally marginalized uh, ethnic groups themselves, so for example, Italians, Americans and Irish Americans, have basically incorporated themselves into the idea of being white Americans through racism, through asserting their prominence or their sort of, you know, their place on a, on a racial totem pole above above black people that yeah. they've sort of integrated into being white by using these slurs and that's obviously and that's the argument is that it's a commentary and condemnation of that the issue with tarantino or the the, the comment the comparison with tarantino is that tarantino instead treats it as a method of performance for these people that it's it's very much a a way of projecting who they are into the world and sort of like appropriating in in some way shape or form or sort of uh kind of co-opting a culture and presenting a version of the self i mean i'm surprised we haven't seen in or maybe and like maybe we have but i'm surprised we haven't seen in a tarantino movie somebody speaking like this and somebody else saying hey why do you have to speak like that yeah or 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 a black character pointing out that it's completely inappropriate for a white character yeah. like do you watch atlanta no, I haven't, but I'd like to. It's well, very. It's, how do you watch it? It's very good. It's on BBC Two at the moment, or it okay. was earlier in the summer. But it's um, there's a moment in it where early in the first episode, where Ern has a friend who is a not a friend, but he has he has an acquaintance who works at a radio station who's white, who uses the N word in conversation with him. Yeah. Um, and it's obviously really awkward and really really kind of cringy. And there's a moment where after the white guys use the N-word, Ern basically talks to another black person. He's like, does he ever call you the N-word? And he's like, no, if he did, I'd flatten him. And there's that sort of interesting sort of interplay there. And it feels like you're building for a Tarantino movie to reach a point like that, where, you know, somebody waits until Steve Buscemi leaves the room and they're like, did he use the N-word to refer to you? It's like, yeah, okay. He knows that's not cool, right? I I feel, I feel like um, it'd be weird... At this point, maybe to make such a, um, I don't, I don't feel like people were making these comments so much at the time. 
I know and, that, for and, example, and, obviously Spike Lee was. Spike Lee was making these comments from around the time of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Well, that's they fair would, enough. They would have come up at the same time. They would have been at the same sort of Cannes Film Festival and stuff like that. Yeah. And Lee, Lee is, is and understandably... And very politically minded. And is also very, very angry at Tarantino. And, and justifiably so. I'm not going to dismiss his anger. I think it's no. entirely justified in a conversation worth having. Um, I th- I, yeah, I think Tarantino has come along a little bit with the times. Yeah. This is the thing, like Tarantino, we talked about this when we talked about Django Unchained, but also The Hateful Eight. Where not to excuse. Not to excuse his stuff. And I mean, to because, be honest... Like, like the thing about, the thing about the, these sorts of um, issues that people have with a movie is that it's enough for somebody to be offended. Yeah. And like for, 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 some, uh, for it to be kind of worth talking about. Now, it's, it's also kind of... We, we, live, we live in a world where... Um, if something is offensive, it doesn't mean it doesn't have any worth. Yeah. So there, like any, any, um, there, there are very many number of things that can cause offense. Yeah. Like, and it would be like, perfectly valid for somebody to say that they don't want to watch a Tarantino movie because of his use of the N word. That's a like perfectly I might valid. I find yeah. Celine Dion offensive. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> to, to, to my I'm not sure we can quite equate that. With, okay, to your sense of taste. Just so we're yeah. clear. Yes. Okay. No, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I, the point I'm making is that any, of course, of course, this is a more serious. Yes, sorry, sorry. I, I probably we're walking should. towards Gran Torino territory. <laughs> I felt the need to call you on it. No, that, I'm, I apologize. I'm sorry. That, that's that, that's quite right. My, my, um, I suppose it's it. The the point I was trying to make is that while while not everyone um, was offended by this, like for. I mean, for example, Samuel L. Jackson, as far as I'm aware, has never Sa- came out and said... Samuel L. Um, Jackson has said that he has N-word privileges. Yeah. Like, so it's not like he hasn't come out and said. He's come out and said, and he's, he's, he believes that Tarantino has the privilege to use the word. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so like, it, it, that was my point, is, is that in, in the, the African-American community is not so homogenous. Yeah, it's not homogenous. Everyone feels yeah. the same way about... Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it, it's 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 valid if 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 people do. Yeah, and that's perfectly fair and stuff. I mean, in terms of the use of the N word, then I think that we'll sort of move on then because I think it ties into this question that, and I think you broached it earlier when we were talking about like the meaning of the film and the meaning of memory and stuff like that to the film's question of morality. Because I think that, like, Tarantino, you're right when you say Tarantino's come on a lot in his use of the N-word. And that, like, I think Pulp Fiction, when we get to Pulp Fiction, we're going to have to talk a lot about the Tarantino character and his use of the N-word. But in films like Django Unchained and in films like The Hateful Eight, they're very consciously moral films in that they're very consciously anchored in this idea of injustice and this idea of suffering and this idea of hurt. And the N-word has a very... I mean, again, Spike Lee is justifiably, ups- you know, he's, he's he's angered about it and he's talked about it. And his, his complaints, I can't dismiss them as invalid. But I do think that there's an argument to be made that they, if there was ever a place for the use of the N-word in a Tarantino film, films like The Hateful Eight and films like Django are very much the place for it. But I do think that there is an interesting morality at play in Reservoir Dogs as well. I think that there's an element, like... It's not one of the criticisms of the wave of independent filmmakers that came up in the 90s, and this includes the Coen brothers as well, is that they were very nihilistic, is that a lot of critics looked at films like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Fargo, and saw them as being morally vacuous, morally empty, morally bankrupt in many ways, shapes or form, in that they're films about horrible people who do horrible things 
and and horrible consequences befall no, no, absolutely everybody with, with no uh, with no moral value or weight whatsoever. And, and and I know you tend to disagree with that characterization, yet you know the underlying reasons why there's so much nihilism, yet reject the the examples of. Uh, uh, said nihilism. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand. So you what, know that it's a trend. I can understand. The but, but 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 it's a trend with no examples. <laughs> um, I'm aware. Oh, you okay? So the sense I understand the sense of meaninglessness in the context of the nineties. I feel like people. I understand yeah, so why people felt that. like. Oh, yeah, I, but when when it, when it comes to to kind of clear examples of, <laughs> of uh, you tend to reject um, that 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 they are. So where are they? There's a question, Andrew. There's a question. Okay, in in the in the context of like nihilism in the '90s, I mean that it's more a broader sense of a lack of purpose or meaning, and I feel like you can comment on that and engage with that in the same way that this movie does, without embracing it or accepting it at face value. I think there is a morality at play within Reservoir Dogs. I think the film has a moral core, uh, which is interesting. I feel like there's maybe one big counterexample to that. But I feel like, generally speaking, the movie has a very sturdy moral core. And I think that it's quite pointed in the way that the movie builds to a certain point in its flashbacks. I'm... I think if you do the right thing, nothing will work out well. You will probably <laughs> die. Um, you'll probably be, be brutally murdered. If you do the wrong thing, you'll probably also be brutally murdered. Um, we, we're all going to die. The only, um, question is the order. <laughs> I feel like that's a, that's the, the kind of moral message of Reservoir of, Dogs yeah, as far yeah. as I understand. It's like, if you wanted to make a, 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 a moral point in a movie, I think it, w- it would be probably more straightforward ways of, of doing so than in something like Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Which, which is like, it's, I, I'm looking forward to this because it's going to be a real struggle for you to pull out <laughs> some, um, so it's like, so here, here's why I think Reservoir Dogs, which obviously is completely nihilistic and has no moral point, here's why it does, because, and then... And then <laughs> Thank you, Andrew, for teeing me up there. I'm looking forward to the 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 sort of the the dissonance of play play there, where it's a movie about a lack of morals while somehow having its own internal set of morals. Yeah, here's here's why it's a very Christian movie. Yeah, here's why it's the most divine and Christian movie. I mean, did you see the crucifix hanging in Tim Roth's bling apartment? No. Okay, let let's let's do this. The one argument, the one thing that I cannot possibly counter, the one, the moral centre of the movie that I cannot get around, the, the argument that it is nihilistic that I cannot possibly refute is the death of the police officer who keeps the secret for Mr. Orange. That's the only yeah. part of the film that, that I oh, I can't yeah. really excuse, which is... Is that why you killed a blonde? Well, you didn't kill him for any reason, because now he's dead. It, 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 yeah. Yeah. Which, which again, which, you know, underscores the fact that bad things happen in the world and, and sometimes... For you no know, reason. Not for no reason. It happens and, because and, uh, these people like, decided to rob a and you, jewelry you, store. You do you do good things for 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 good reasons, only to find out that those reasons aren't reasons, Are com- but um, don't amount to anything. Yeah. Like, the, 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 that, that, your, that, your, that, your, that your good deeds... Um, yeah, that was a good deed because it was done to save a person's life, but it didn't save a person's life. It was just an intention. Okay. Um, so, so like there, there, there is 
Yeah, there's a real let's, kind of... Let's talk about this then, yeah. Andrew, all right? At several points during the film, right, you're given various characters to sympathise with and to root for, and to sort of to hope that they do particularly well. And indeed, there's a conversation early in the film, not, sorry, and the focal point, the focal character as the film progresses I would argue turns out to be Mr. Orange. Once you find out that he's an undercover cop, he becomes the focal point so, of the film. Mr. White is, is the... I think, I think the one that you root for, in, in in to me anyway, I think the most charismatic and the character that I want to see more of is Mr. Blonde. I, 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 I And... and so like I was the, going for Mr. Pink. No, the 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 yeah, for, I, I mean, you're saying like the the audience is going to root for um No, mi- I know, mis- I'm not saying mis- I'm not mi- saying that mi- Mr. Orange. What do you see of Mr. Orange is him is him like <laughs> yeah. riding around in the back of the car going Oh yeah, yeah. And 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 so you you have him like kind of crying, and then you know that he's the um, the mole, the, right? the mole, the 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 rat. That is not the person that you're. He's the agent of law enforcement. He's law and order. He's the. That's cop. not the person that you're ro- ro- rooting for in a heist movie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not in your heist movie. Okay. If you look at how the film is laid out and what happens repeatedly over the course of the film, right? Which is, you have this wonderful conversation in Mr. Orange's backstory where you get the flashback and you see how he's an undercover cop and how he came to infiltrate this crew. There's a conversation where he's talking to his handler about this source that he has. And he's like, this source is a nice guy. And the handler's like, no, no, this guy is not a nice guy. He's a criminal. Like, you you need to, like, get that straight in your head. He's not a good person. Which, again, is a very morally absolute statement. It reminds me of when we talked about Django. Oh, when that's Schultz... a moral disagreement. Okay. But it's, it's similar... This, guy, this, guy's really, this guy's really good. We, we got to do right by him. I really appreciate all he's done. It's like, no, this guy is not really good. I'll do right by him, but you don't need to, to, to appreciate him. That's, that's, a, that's a moral disagreement. That's... The, 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 if... if I mean, just 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 because it's the last thing he says doesn't make it any any more okay. kind of ab- absolute. At the that leads to a sequence later on where Mister White and Mister Orange are casing the bank, right? Or casing the jewelry store where they're going to do the heist, and they're having the conversation. And Mister White is very charming. There's like this weird father son thing that we'll talk about because I think I think masculinity and fatherhood are also a theme of the film, but we'll get to that in a little while. But the argument is so they're having this conversation about how they're going to do it, right? And Mr. White is, you know, he's very informed, he's very witty, he's like, you know, so if somebody gives you a lip, what you do is you punch him in the face, you knock him down, you break their nose with a gun. And if somebody's really weird coming out of your lips, Darren. And if, if, you know, if if you're going to get, maybe a woman's going to talk to you, you turn to her, you say, you say, yeah, yeah, you step to her, you say, you want a piece of this? Um, And and that sort of thing. And you can tell that Mr. Orange is in some way. It's like you've put on a mask there and, and all of a sudden you're, <laughs> I'm like Marlon Brando yeah. it's like naturalistic I am naturalistic as yeah you shouldn't be this convincing yeah I know but there's the moment like while they're having the conversation it's fantastic because you can see Tom, Tim Roth's performance is amazing without any dialogue you can see that he's getting sort of drawn into this like macho this sort of portrayal of like rugged sort of like you control the situation and then all of a sudden Mr. White then extrapolates to now 
If a bank manager steps up to you, that's different because they're trained to understand that they shouldn't be standing up to you. So you're going to end up with somebody who thinks he's a hero. So what you do if a bank manager steps up to you is you cut off one of his fingers, starting with the pinky, and you tell him that unless he does exactly what you say, you're going to take another one. And that's the moment at which you look no, at... you're going to take the thumb. Yeah. But then you look at uh, Tim Roth's face, Mr. Orange's face, and that moment where that sort of like admiration, that sort of blokey, hey, this guy isn't actually that bad a guy... It's a moment where he seems to realise with absolute moral certainty that Mr. White is not a good person. Mr. White is quite a bad person, in fact. I don't know about that. He should be called Mr. Green. Like, taking somebody's pinky, what do, you, what do you use a pinky for? We're eventually going to lose the pinkies. <laughs> it's just like a, 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 a kind of like... you like um, if, if someone were to cut off my pinky, it's like... Well, obviously, you're 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 not trying to really harm me, but but now I'm taking you seriously. Like if, I feel if, like if you're much more even-handed. Truly sadistic, they would take off your thumb first, or your ear. Yeah, or your ear. But the the, the the um like um as as fingers go, it's probably the the least noticeable one. You 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 could you uh, you lose. It's it's the counterpoint. It's, it's perhaps one of the least um, uh, counterpoint. What uh, if you dexterous. didn't cut off a finger? Hmm. What if you didn't cut off a finger? Why would you not cut off a finger? Okay, I feel like this is why myself and Andrew have a moral disagreement. But it it happens throughout. Like, he, he's a, a a a bank robber. Like why why do why do um why do loan sharks uh, break people's legs? That doesn't change the fact that they're not nice people. Like there's again yeah, it's like he he said um I'll hit her with the butt of my uh gun I'll, in I'll his hit nose. this guy with the butt of uh, my gun in his nose and then there'll be like blood coming out of his nose. Um how like there there's just a degree like away, away, away from that and cutting off somebody's finger, a finger. You've 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 you you've broken somebody's nose, and you can kill somebody. Yeah, uh, by jamming the bone somewhere um, where it shouldn't go. Yeah, or the cartilage. Sorry. Ex- a, ex- a, exactly. As, especially if it's like upward, there's yeah. a chance it can impact the brain. Yeah. Um. So, um. And 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 you're and you're probably causing someone to be de- deformed in a more subtle way. Okay, but again, I so feel... like he he, but but Tim Roth's kind of um, response to that is like, oh yeah, cool, yeah. Um, so like, I don't know. I think it's. I think I like I. I mean, I agree to you to an extent, but I don't see why. And that, that... he's so shocked by by well, that... by 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 the finger. Why why that's taking it. Too a far. step too far. Again, it's worth noting that the cutting off They're of the finger... They're robbing a jewellery store. Well, the cutting off of the finger then suggests an equivalence between that and Mr. Blonde, who cuts off another part of a person's anatomy. But Mr. Blonde is, again, completely amoral. He's the point He's where I'm going to... for I'm gonna, That's it, exactly. I'm going to torture you, not because it serves a purpose, not because I think you'll tell me anything. I'm going to do it because I think it's fun. Yeah. Um, but th- there's a real sense in Tarantino's films, and it comes out in, say, Django Unchained, when Schultz is like, when, you know, Django has this moment of doubt about, like, shooting a man in front of his son. Schultz takes out a piece of paper and he says, look, Schmitty Bacall chose to rob stagecoaches. He made a choice to do this thing, and as a result, he faces the consequences of that decision. And that consequence involves death. And I feel like there's an element of that to Reservoir Dogs, where the characters make choices, with the exception of the police officer who gets caught in the crossfire. But the characters all I make choices. I don't, I don't think and, you can see a true line. Like, Mar, Mar, but, Mar, um, 
I, I, here, hold on. I got, I got the, I got one for you, right? Here's the thing with Mr. Orange's flashback, which is the emotional climax of the film. It's structured so it's the last flashback that you see. It's also the longest, right? It builds towards one particular moment. It builds towards the moment when he gets shot while trying to carjack a car, while Mr. White is trying to carjack a car. He gets shot by a woman in the car with her gun in the gut. The wound that, you know, may eventually kill him if the climax doesn't lead to Mr. White shooting him in the head, right? But... That's not the moment. It's the moment when he reflexively fires back and kills this innocent woman. This real person, in inverted commas, as the film describes people who exist outside he's the world. He's upset because he's going to die. He's not upset because no, he's, he killed an innocent he's woman. He's not upset. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the film itself. That's the moral judgment. The film builds to an emotional climax. It's treated as a big reveal. You get a look of react. You get that reaction shot when he does it, which is if to say this is a big deal. Even in the middle of this cacophony of cops and robbers taking place, of like the police sirens in the background, this small moment in which he reflexively pointed a gun at the person who'd shot him, this innocent woman who was just trying not to get carjacked and killed her. When Mr. Pink, for example, had pulled a woman out of the car rather than shooting her, you have this. No, his reaction action comes earlier than that when 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 he sees white dispatching two police officers but again he 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 has already gone um in his mind beyond a point of no return things are steadily getting more and more like his his mistake was to be an undercover cop i I, because nothing Matters. Yeah, <laughs> like he. The re- reason he did this was to be like um, to make a difference, and that was his um, mistake to start out with. It, he didn't die because he uh, shot a woman. He died because he was part of, part 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 of this caper. Oh. Where there is no there is no moral kind of um, causation or sen- sense that. And by well, there's the, no by, literal causation, but no, I think no, there's no, a very no, clear the, connection like, narratively he, where the he, film. He, he he and and so there are two there are two reasons why he could have died. He could have died because he took part in 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 the heist, whether he was undercover or not, because he ends up getting shot. Second reason why he could have died. The reason he actually does die is because he's a rat and he gets shot in the face and he's dead. Um, so th- those are the two reasons why, um, if 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 you need reasons, why 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 Mister um, Orange dies, it's not because he killed a woman who was innocent. Okay, I I, I look at the film cosmology, if, and I look if, at the, I look if, at Tarantino's if, if that, overall if that approach. Were the case, we would have seen this woman for more than a split second. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you see her for more than a second. She's it does, an innocent because bystander. if you want to to create some sort of um, empathy in the like you the, the, the but that's the, the moment where the he... scene would have started not not with them um not following them but following her okay. and 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 then you would have seen it from her perspective um them stopping the car and you would have seen from her perspective grabbing the gun and they, well, you do, that, you do that's, see, that's you do see you her do. grabbing the gun that's you what like you from, do inside think, the car that's what you do in, no you're 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 clutching a straws that's what you do in things like sicario where you set it up from the very beginning that the that 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 that, that an, an, an innocent police officer is 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 going to be taken away in 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 the in in this movie that woman means nothing to this movie she is she, like the, 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 she all 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 she does is shoot Tim Roth but the, he 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 could have been shot by a police officer and he wasn't, and that was a choice. That was a narrative choice on the part of the film. To have him shot by her and to have him shoot her, and, to, he, including, and, and including the reaction shot. 
Like, it's a point at which his hands literally become bloody. Not only because he's shot her, but because he's been shot and his hands then become bloody. At no point does he say, I shot a woman. Like, um, not, not when, not when he's alone with the police officer, does he say anything, um, he's just like, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. Okay, I, I, again, I look at the, I look at the Tarantino cosmology, and I... No, no, this is you having an, 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 an argument that you want to make, and, and then working backwards from, from your conclusion. Harsh, Harsh. Okay, again, I think the fact that the film builds to that climax. I think the fact that it's it's Mr. Orange's story where the film gets in most depth talking about memory and stuff like that. I think there's an... The point is well, that... There's the, only one way to settle this. Twitter poll. Yeah, this is exactly... I don't know how we word this. <laughs> in 280 characters. Yeah. Okay, well, we, we will agree to disagree then. This will be our disagreement over meaning, Andrew. This yeah, will be in, in, exactly. in which, perfect which, Reservoir Dogs style. Which leads to my point. <laughs> That nothing I means I can't let uh, <laughs> you just can't let it go. Yeah. Um, nothing means anything, uh, except that I strongly I don't think that's the Listen, case in the Tarantino movies. Again, like, and, and this you is not something. Mr. Orange is a good guy. You're wrong. That's what I'm saying. No. Yeah, he, that's exactly what he's, I'm saying. He's, he's he not damns a good himself. guy. I mean, I'll do right by him. <laughs> do you, need, you don't need to worry about Mr. Orange. <laughs> but yeah, okay. I this. is... Listen, I'm like, it's not as if I'm afraid to call things, like, nihilistic. I think that Kurosawa is an incredibly nihilistic director. I think that Kubrick borders on and is nihilistic. I just don't think that Tarantino is. Because Tarantino's movies typically have a moral framework. And I think that... I don't know. I feel like I remember Ikiru being quite, um... Humanist? Yeah, and sort of, um, almost uh, feel-good. And that's Akira Kurosawa making the kind of movie he wanted to make. Okay. Um, but it's been a while since I've seen Akira. Anyway, we're not well, luckily, talking about Kurosawa. Well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, okay, we'll, we'll, we will agree to disagree on this because nobody can know anything and nothing has any it's meaning like, whatsoever. What example you gave? I was <laughs> like, well, I disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you to give examples. You give one example and it's like, that's not an example. That is yeah. a complete example. <laughs> the example that is, is these, a complete people, example. these people chose to do a, and we're having this argument again. These people chose to do a bad yeah, thing. Yeah. Nobody was forced to take part in this robbery. Everybody chose to be there. Everybody bloodied their hands. And as a result, they're all implicated. Nobody chooses to do anything, Darren. Because it's all completely <laughs> meaningless. <laughs> our ex- our existence is nothing but pain and suffering. Um, but I mean, yeah. That's not my point of view. This, this <laughs> is like the movie's point of view. I mean, even Mr. So, Pink cannot escape the moral reckoning at the end of the film, where it's implied that he dies off screen. You hear him shouting from inside the car. You hear the shooting from the cops outside. And then you see the cops breaking in and attacking Mr. Do you, do you don't the, see them. Do you do this with very meaningful full uplifting movies and then reverse engineer them into really nihilistic um, <laughs> stories. Yeah, it's like, is there a darker side to the Shawshank Redemption? Um, the Shawshank Redemption is the grimmest I'm, movie I'm, I've ever I'm seen. Sorry, no, I, no, it's, just it's, it's, a, it, yeah, it's a fair yeah. point. I do like that. It, so listeners, do you think that Reservoir Dogs is more or less optimistic about the human condition than the Shawshank Redemption? <laughs> um, it's a toughie, let me tell you that. But let's, let's talk about like the movie's approach to masculinity because I feel like this is a and, big thing yeah and, and I, I, <laughs> talking about approaches to masculinity <laughs> and i and i think it kind of and i think that it's approach to masculinity i don't think it's that ambivalent about it i i i don't um i think there is a sense in which 
Mr. Blonde is the he's certainly the most uh, charismatic character in this movie. He is the I guess coolest if you like of of the and cool in the sense that like his his um calm he exudes charisma he exudes. yeah in spite of him being a homicidal maniac and mass killer hey we can't he, all be perfect andrew yeah and he he looks impeccable as well <laughs> yeah. compared to the others he walks into the he doesn't he, walk in it's you're telling that you don't actually see him walk in he's just oh, there yeah. He's, he's, just, ju- he's, he's just there. The camera pulls back from, like, an argument with Mr. Yeah. Pink and Mr. White pointing guns at one another. And he's... He... He was... He was at the jewellery He wasn't just at the jewellery heist. He killed, like, what? Four people. Yeah. Bang. Bang. <laughs> bang. Bang. Um, and, uh... Kidnapped a cop. Kidnapped a cop. Went to In-N-Out. <laughs> ordered a meal. Presumably very yeah, calmly. Got fries. Yeah. A drink. No food waste. Oh, there is some food waste. There is some minor food waste. When when Mr. White steps up, he proceeds to throw the cup across the room. Now, it may be empty. It may just be ice. But I don't know it if that counts for... Oh, okay. Are you just making excuses? Are you reverse engineering for Mr. <laughs> Blonde here? Um, by the but, way... But fun- he... He, um, he is... Um, he is a really perversely charming um, character. He d- does the... Um, him doing the dance <laughs> is like the, the most kind of astonishing um, scene in, in, in like the entire movie. Well, it's certainly the most it's, iconic. It's, and yeah, and it's cutting back from him to the face of the of the police <laughs> officer. And and there's the the humour in in that as well. The, the juxtaposition. Her, horrific humour because he's like cu- cutting off the like there's a humour in this in, in that like oh oh um the, this this is um, this is sampled in there's there's there, there's a lot of sampling of um, Tarantino in um, Fun Loving Criminals. Yeah. So like this is the, the the kind of like you can torture me all you like and it's like oh torture you that's a good idea, but the, the, this like kind of and and this explanation that like I'm not doing this because I think you got I information. Think, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, he he completely. Uh, rejects the efficacy of torture. Um, but, but <laughs> Mr. From, Blonde but is the from, real hero that we need right now. Place. <laughs> this is, yeah. um, and, and, and torture, then, it's not useful, but it's fun. Yeah, and, and, and so he's playing the music and he's kind of like... Shimmying um, and dancing. Joking around and, and, and dancing. He has this, like Straight earlier crazy. in the movie, he has this um, really fun sort of backward and forth between uh, him, and him, Mr. White. him and Mr. White. And... and and he always comes out the better of it as well, because because like Harvey Keitel is he's the every, grown up of the group. Yeah, but the funny thing about it is that he 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 always brings this melodrama, <laughs> and 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 you're thinking like, oh, what is this? Because he he's like, it's against the rules, and uh, he's having this like. Where you find your um, like partner in a puddle of mud, and 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 and, and next his brains are in your hand, and uh, like uh, is this really kind of like Ross kind of speech he 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 gives, and then um, Andrew, I'll, 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 Andrew, I'll, which I'll, one of us is having difficulty finding meaning in this movie or moral and morality in and this then, world? And then all of a sudden, Mister Blonde. Says, "Oh, I'm. I'm sure it was a lovely moment." 
Like completely cutting through all of the um overwrought like, sort yeah, of like Yeah, yeah, all of the kind of moralizing. Like I had to do it. Uh what would you have done in that situation? And it's like, oh well I'm 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 sure it's a lovely moment. <laughs> uh is he, like has no time whatsoever. And he is the he is the the, the um He's he perfectly com- adapted to the environment in which yeah, he finds himself. He always comes out in, in like like um, the better in these kind of exchanges between him and Mr. White. The moment Mr. where White. he claps, to for the example, point where and bows. Pink, yeah. who um, who like was was like before Mr. Blonde came in, he was like, "Oh, could you believe Mr. Blonde?" And all of a sudden, Mr. Blonde is in and. Mr. Pink has gone quiet. Yeah. And he's almost kind of like... And then taking the side of Mr. Blonde. Yeah. Mr. Blonde is the... Um, is 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 the... Um, the hyper-masculine... And uh, the, 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 the one who's given the, the best lines. And, and the, 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 the one that is in, in a really perverse way... Very um, charismatic and... He's also the reason that the entire situation goes to pot. Because it's him starting shooting, allegedly, inside the, the ice that leads the police to have to come in quickly to lead the whole thing turning into a bloodbath. The, there's a really strange thing about how the cops aren't, <laughs> the, the cops uh, aren't moving in. Yeah. They are outside while... while, while uh, <laughs> All Tim, hell. Well, Tim Roth yeah, is bleeding out. Tim Roth is bleeding out. And, uh, the, and, and, and another of their own police officers is having his ear cut off and then is being shot to death. And, and uh, they're, they're waiting... For Joe to, to arrive. To move in for, for Joe to arrive. I think at this point, it's like, let's protect the lives of, of these uh, police officers because this has not went to plan. <laughs> like, what's the, what's the plan anyway when, um, when, when, when Joe does arrive? Come out with your hands up. And it's like, well, one of us is a rat. Um, and and, and like, like they're, they're, at no point are any of them willing to kind of give themselves in to the police. They'd rather die. So so, how was that? The, I I know I'm kind of like doing that thing, like where you where you go and kind of look, look at, at at movies. I think you're reverse engineering your arguments <laughs> from the starting point that Mr. Blonde is cool. That's a that's um, that's that's a um, now you give me a critical cliche I can wield like a cudgel. Exactly, I know you admire me, but you don't have to steal my my, my stuff, Darren. <laughs> yeah. um, um, I, I'm, 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 it is worth noting how much of the film uh, unfolds in men's restrooms, which I quite like as well. So, for example, the early argument between Mr. White and Mr. Pink, in which Mr. Pink spends most of the argument off screen, which is a nice touch, where they're shouting at each other initially about how things went wrong and, and what was supposed to go there. You have, like, the really long shot of the two of them. Like, he's Mr. White washing his hands. The code is further down the way there. But also you have Tim Roth's story, uh, Mr. Orange's story, about, like, the... Uh, the bathroom with the yeah. police officers in it and there, stuff like that. That scene with Mr. White and Mr. Pink is a really weird scene. Yeah. Like for a few, <clears throat> for a few reasons. He's Complete like, with the 250 trope of inappropriate smoking. Although not inappropriate because of where it takes place, but inappropriate because that's not how you smoke a cigarette. Yeah, he pretends to smoke. There's a weird thing though, because he, he, said, he, he goes over to, he, they're having a conversation and then Mr. White gets distracted. Walks over and like kind of looks in the like place where there's the shower, and 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 then kind of comes back to Mr. Pink and continues to have the conversation. It's like, what's Mr. <laughs> White 
scene in scene, the- scene in the shower, and then they're talking, and he's like, "Hey, re- uh, relax. Pour, pour some water over your face. Do you smoke?" And he's like, "No, I quit." Oh, you haven't got any, have you? And then he's like, "Hold on." He, I think he briefly checks his pockets. Then he goes back into the shower room and comes back with like a lighter and, and cigarettes. <laughs> Did he like? Leave some stuff there for uh, for. Was he, was he um, kind of talking to Mister Pink, and then like looked into the shower room and it's like, oh, it's just a whole lot of cigarettes and lighters, lighters just lying there. Yeah, that sort um, of sets my mind. I would really like to smoke, but then he lights. Interesting enough, he lights Mister Pink's cigarette. It's quite clear that he lights the cigarette that Steve Buscemi's smoking. You can see the smoke coming out of it, and but then he doesn't light his own. Doesn't light his own. It's uh, but then proceeds to act as if he's smoking it. It's a very strange scene on a number of levels. It's a very, very strange scene. It is very strange. But uh, and also then obviously the story later on with Mr. Orange and the police officers in the in the men's room, which is quite nice. Which I really like about that scene is that it gets so recursive. The point where you have not only do you have the flashback in which it's taking place, in which Mr. Orange is then telling the stories of the criminals about how he was in the bathroom. But then within that, you also have the police officer telling the story about this one arrest that he yes. was doing as well. So you have this weird recursive thing where this police officer, who probably never actually existed, is telling his own story within the confines of this movie. But I like the idea that, like, in Tarantino, or in, in Reservoir Dogs, that men's rooms become like these weirdly important spaces in terms of defining male identity and stuff like that yeah <laughs> i mean yeah you're almost expected to go um more recursive but yeah even even within the sort of fantasy even within the story these like quentin tarantino characters even when they are figments of other quentin tarantino characters imaginations are still highly verbose and, and prone to yeah. tell long extended stories you expect the girlfriend to be like no that's not how i remember it <laughs> So it was a fourth Uh, wall break within a fourth (laughs) wall break. That's like 16 walls, man. Tarantino has a very... He has a position on this. Is that he doesn't have any flashbacks in his movies. Oh, yes. I've had this discussion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That 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 a flashback is 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 something where you <laughs> and you flashback. You literally flashback. It's a very technical and specific term. I mean, yeah. it's worth noting again. Tarantino was a major film fan. He was working in a video store when he wrote this, for example, and he was um, what was it? He um, this the title of the film comes from a customer who was looking for Au revoir in France but mispronounced it as Reservoir Dogs. And no, before you ask, Andrew, it was not me travelling through time trying to pronounce the title of this movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of... Uh, it is interesting in terms of masculinity. You have this weird thing running through this dynamic of fathers or surrogate fathers and sons in that the characters tend to pair off as fathers and as sons and the relationships that they have to one another that frequently seem to blind them. Uh, and, and it's interesting because, I mean, this is another thing where you could argue that Tarantino was being nihilistic or cynical, where, you know, nothing matters. But this idea that, like, your relationships and the people that you trust will betray you, the people who you think of as your extended family will let you down. So, for example, you have, obviously, Mr. White and Mr. Orange. They're the most obvious examples, where Mr. White yeah. becomes almost a surrogate father figure to, to Mr. Orange, where it's like, how are we going to do this job? And gee, that girl's pretty. Want to make a misogynistic comment about her? That's some good work, son. Um, and then also you have, for example, Joe, who's obvious. His son is obviously Eddie. But in a in a more real sense, it feels like Mr. Blonde is his son. And that means yeah, Mr. Blonde is somebody... Brothers. 
Yeah, they've sort of they He's cared like an for an adopted one. child. Yeah, they've cared for one another. They protect him. He sent him care so packages. Who show to Mister White? That's a question, actually. That's a fair point. Is he also a father figure? Is you don't he? really get much of that dynamic outside of Mister White, sort of like playfully taking it's the book. Kind of like an uncle. Kind yeah. Of. There is like an, a, a sort of a vuncular. It's like sit down and tell me about like um, and 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 how did that go with um, with her? Yeah. Um, Oh, and, and, and what do you what do you think about this? Um, yeah. And then, but you have throughout the film, you have the idea that these relationships are falsifiable and that they will inevitably lead to disappointment. So obviously, like the big thing at the end is that Mr. White discovers that Mr. Orange was a police informer all along. So he puts the gun to his head, he pulls the trigger and he gets shot and that's the end of the movie. And you get the lime in the coconut playing. But even, even more... Yeah, which br- is so incongruous. And and perfectly Tarantino esque. Yeah. Well, I mean, you won't talk about and it. It's um, it, all 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 it relates to is 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 um, uh, the Tom, feeling of the Tom, gut. Tommy's feeling sore. Yeah, um, which is basically the takeaway from the end of the movie. Yeah, but even which which Tim Roth can empathize with. Which goes to show you that it's a really very meaningful movie after all. It's very profound, a lot of depth to it as well. But even say Joe's trust in Mr. Blonde, uh, which turns out to be, you could argue whether or not it's 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 mistaken because obviously once Mr. Orange is a police informer, they're all going to prison anyway. But the argument about whether or not Mr. Blonde made things worse by shooting things up in the jewellery store where that led to a chain of events that led to them all pointing guns at one another, where Mr. White, who was maybe a sort of a, an, uncle, an uncle-type figure, you know, sorry, who was maybe like a nephew-type figure to, to Joe, ends up executing both Joe and Eddie, um, where you have this sort of like this breakdown of like male familial relationships that's maybe in some ways ties back to what we were talking about when we got to the start, which is how nobody can trust anybody, and nobody can trust any experience beyond their own experience, and even then you can't really trust those. Yeah. And how, like, the, you know, sort of whether or not any, like, male relationship, any male father and son relationship can have any meaning or any depth, or and particularly if it's rooted in these sort of archetypes, if it's rooted in this sort of, like, violence and, and sort of, like, you know, the the crime and the, the brutality and the horror of it all. Remembering Mr. Blonde and Nice Guy Eddie has just reminded me of uh, just go, going way back. I, I, I should respond... Um, to what you said, but it's just reminded me of another example of 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 kind of uh, memory and reality and different subjective versions of things, where Nice Guy Eddie comes in and he's uh, and Mister Blonde straight away says, um, "Joe was just telling me that you're leading this company into ruin." <laughs> and, uh, and Joe's like, "Well, I have to be honest, right?" <laughs> um. Where he's presenting like a different version of of, of, of what the audience has literally yeah. just seen. Yeah, but yeah, and I mean, sorry, no, no, no. There's there's a lot in there as well, and there's a sense that yeah, that Joe has basically adopted Mister Blonde as his son, and is sort of maybe perhaps blind to his flaws as well. Like there's a sense that you know, even though Eddie's correct in that Mister Blonde would be very unlikely to betray them, he doesn't. He, Eddie also I don't seems think he's blind to his flaws because nice guy Eddie. I suppose isn't isn't too isn't too different to Mister Blonde in some ways. Well, he he executes the cop, for example. Yeah, yeah. He's like, um, you got all upset because because Mister Blonde was going to to murder this cop. Oh, this cop. Yeah, and proceeds to shoot him as well. But yeah, there's this 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 emphasis throughout. Like, Daddy, did you see this? Is is one of the great lines from there? Yeah, um, which is like he's like a toddler. He's like, <laughs> 
his yeah. father's office. Yeah, but it's it's basically. It, but it's not even that. It's not like dad or hey, because he refers to Joe as Joe when he's talking about him with other people. Like he talks, he talks about his father as Joe, but when he's talking to him directly, there's this real sort of familiar sort of daddy element yeah. to it. It's not dad. It's not father. It's not sir. It's daddy. Which is kind of weird. It's 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 an interesting sort of emphasis, or particularly like in the context of a scene in which Mr. Blonde and him are basically roughhousing on the floor like a bunch of sort of like toddlers. I really enjoy that because it looks like Chris Penn and, <laughs> and, and Michael Madsen. And Michael Madsen are enjoying themselves. Um, well, you know that obviously Tarantino. Rumor has it that Tarantino was at some one stage looking to do the the Vega Brothers film. Where he'd argue that the character of Vic Vega from here and Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction were actually brothers, um, and that he would get Travolta and Madsen to perform together, uh, yeah. basically to lead a film. Now, I mean, this ties back to what you're saying about Tarantino as an actor's director, and that Tarantino has a habit of getting the, the best performances. Of, yeah, yeah that actors... Michael Madsen is not good in other things. No, uh, yeah, but uh, he's like, really great. We, here. we talked about Don Johnson. Yes, Don Johnson in like for and then Don Johnson in a tiny role, relatively speaking, in for example Django Unchained. But yeah, it's this idea of like coaxing, like and John Travolta. Even. Yeah, John Travolta. Well, John Travolta is one of those actors who's had like several chances. Yeah. He's had like he's had several moments where he's like been on top of the world, and he's just made terrible choices after those, but somehow found his way back up. Like after Pulp Fiction, he was doing Michael and Phenomenon and stuff like that. You remember those? those? Were big. Yeah, A lot those of were... people saw them. I mean, it might have been part of the whole buzz around. <laughs> um, they weren't like flops, really. They weren't flops, but they I were feel also. Like mo- I've seen both. Yeah, but they weren't they weren't movies that sold people on Travolta though. They weren't movies no. like. You could argue that maybe he would have had more success even if he'd stayed with stuff like Face Off or even Broken Arrow. Nick Cage's Angel movie was better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's a Face Off argument right there waiting <laughs> to happen. What if you were to put John Travolta in City of Angels with the Goo Goo Dolls soundtrack? Would it be a better movie? But you're right. No, when- what I, what I, what I want to see is... Um, uh, Nicolas Cage M- and Michael. M- M- Michael and, and um, Nicolas Cage from... Um, City of Angels. City of Angels, but in the same movie <laughs> just intercut them there's a fan edit waiting to happen yeah but you're right though when you say that like madsen has never never been better and, and it's kind of like madsen is one of those performers where you see him occasionally popping up in like sharknado movies now and yeah. you see him doing like really like a guest appearances on 24 it, where he has a single sharknado or was this um like uh arachnophobia or like something where there's like a giant um crocodile or a a giant spider or a a giant spider that's also a python (laughs) or um yeah he he has a sort of a track record of doing terrible sci-fi channel yeah he has that let's take a look and see look at his recent filmography he probably did terrible movies before Tarantino picked him up and Tarantino probably picked him up because he watches terrible, so many movie. terrible movies. Yeah, so he did like for example Megalodon playing Admiral King which is a science fiction movie about a giant a, sorry, a sci-fi movie about a giant shark. There's a difference between a science fiction movie and a sci-fi movie uh, to be fair. But he's also he starred in a lot of stuff 237 titles which is a phenomenal amount of work. He's he's done an amazing uh, amount of appearances like just in terms of stuff that he's actually i'm scrolling through his filmography literally as we speak and i've only hit 2016 so far i'm now on 2005 but there's a whole bunch of stuff that is 
absolutely that I've never even heard of, but sounds absolutely terrible. Um, he did play the boyfriend in uh, Enigi Azalea and Rita Ora Black Widow video. Wow. Yeah. The, the um, I feel I feel like I don't want to talk for Michael Madsen, but I imagine it's kind of like, oh, this is what I do uh, for a living, and it's up to my manager to get the best out of me. <laughs> you know. Um, um, but it's um, like you feel like Madsen would probably like to take a vacation every once in a while because you I'm have to half ass it if I can get away with it at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if but, no one's looking at, if no one's going to watch this, no film, watch this movie. I'm not going to try. Why would I bother yeah. when I'm appearing in CSI Miami for four episodes? And it's like, oh, Madsen, you had such potential because you are. He is so good in this. And I mean, you look at, say, for example, the way that it launched the career of Steve Buscemi. Like, Steve Buscemi is one of those, one of the few Tarantino actors who I think has really sort of capitalized on that moment. Because he really works. In everything he does, like, Buscemi is giving what he can to it. Yeah. Um, And it it feels kind of disappointing when you look at people like Travolta and you look at people like Madsen, who Tarantino obviously has an affinity for and who can obviously coax these wonderful, charismatic, charming, nuanced, like incredibly deep performances. Like Mr. Blonde is a fascinating I think what guy. helps Steve Buscemi is that people who make bad movies probably want somebody who looks like Michael Madsen in them. Because we're like... Because he looks badass. Yeah. We, we get this guy. He, he looks like... Yeah, yeah. He looks like a proper badass. And they're all smoking cigars in a meeting. Yeah. And the girls like him too. Do they? I don't know. It looks like I'm somebody grows up. Ask a girl. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, like, and they're less likely to put Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Like he's the, the the thinking man's actor. I like that the thinking like, man's Michael Madsen, which yeah. is probably the only time that Steve Buscemi it, has been likened. Like, and I think Steve Buscemi is fine with people saying that he looks weird. <laughs> um, it's his thing. <laughs> but um, oh, worth noting on the subject of masculinity. He's only in good movies, really. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, there's probably exceptions. There's always exceptions. Worth noting, um, in terms of masculinity, the film has two credited female roles and no lines for female characters. There was a deleted scene which featured uh, a female character, which was of course the central character in the movie is 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 the lady who gets shot in the in in in, in the car. Because that's Late. the that's the mo- moment at which the movie turns. Yeah, well, and that's the the the, 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 the big moment reveal. The, You'll notice that the the real like um, moral the, of the moral compass is that lady. Yeah, and, well, she is one of the two women credited. To be fair, um, which, yeah. but yeah, and and there, <laughs> you know that she was played by Tim Roth's acting coach slash accent coach. Yeah. Apparently she was so hard on him at coaxing him to do an American accent. Because American accent is actually quite good in this, to be honest. Um, really? Okay. Andrew's yeah. wincing for, for listeners without a video feed. It's okay. I mean, I, 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 I didn't think Tim Roth was great in this. Really? No. <laughs> Particularly no, compared to his other body of work? And, and, and I didn't think... Um, I didn't think... Harvey Keitel? Harvey Keitel was particularly good in this either. There's a lot of hamming. Okay. In in um in this. They're 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 um I feel like um Tarantino is a very good director of actors. He could have asked him to maybe rein it in a little bit. Well worth noting it is his first it is his first um big 
film, so it is possible. Well, yeah, working and with Kaitel. also probably how many how many uh, takes are you going to get? Yeah, and also you know Kaitel like Kaitel gave you one gave you one point five million basically. Yeah. there's a limit to how much you can throw your weight around on that set. Yeah, having said that, like the 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 the, the um, section I, when I thought Kaitel was kind of. Um, getting very hammy I felt like that was probably intentional yeah. because it was there um, to be undercut by by, by Mr. By Blonde yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I actually I'm going to be quite honest I, I really like both Keitel and Roth in this I think that Buscemi uh, is probably the most valuable player here I like Madsen as well I think Madsen is exceptionally well used I think Tierney is also very well used uh, but that's yeah. largely because of the persona that Tierney projects I mean he was famously difficult to work with on the set to the point where Tarantino reportedly tried to fire him three days into the, into the film um, he apparently nearly came to blows with Madsen Madsen is interesting because Madsen is reportedly um, qu- obviously quite different from Mr. Blonde in that it's, it's very hard to imagine somebody being similar to Mr. Blonde but apparently he had difficulty shooting the scene with the police officer uh, when the police officer, when the actor playing the police officer ad-libbed, please, I got a kid at home. Apparently he broke character uh, in that take as well. Um, and there's a, there, he apparently, he also, the police officer asked that, or the guy playing the police officer asked for his method in inverted commas, that he be thrown into the trunk and have Michael Madsen drive him around. Uh, just so he could feel what it was like and sort of get that experience of what like... What an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> what an idiot. Sorry. Well, you, but, um... you complain about like method actors who are mean to other actors. I feel like asking <laughs> no, Michael Madsen to like, throw you in his it's trunk... It's so silly though. It is All a little bit. All of that method stuff is like... And I... Having a method... Is, is is yeah? It should be is, noted that the method isn't me- actually what it's yeah, become. What, what like the method become is is <laughs> a, a, like this very sort of like cliched meaning of, of actors of are super important, and what yeah. they do on stage is the same as what people do in real life. Damn it! Uh, whereas that's not what the method is. The method it's more consists about stuff like kind of sense memory and that. yeah, and, and imagination. The method, as far as I'm aware, what my reading of the method was way back when was it's basically something that in many ways it's a very logical extension of acting which is like you pretend what it's like to be this character outside <laughs> of reading the lines so it's not like you imagine that your character has a life outside the lines and stitch it together into a cohesive picture of a character in your head whereas what it's become in popular culture and what's become through like <laughs> the cult of Daniel yeah, Day-Lewis the Joker. that's it exactly it's it's this idea of literally transforming Daniel yourself Daniel Day-Lewis gets a pass for me <laughs> just because he's that good yeah, when 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 all of these was it Jared of, Leto for example? Yeah, Jared yeah. Leto is the probably perfect counter example. Or like the police officer in in Reservoir <laughs> Dogs. It's is, like you could probably act afraid without having to be driven round in your car. Yeah. Though, by the way, when Michael Madsen did it, he decided that it would be good for his own character development to go to an In-N-Out Burger. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he drove to the Out Burger with this actor in his trunk and ordered uh, the a drink and stuff. <laughs> um, Seems like a charming guy. Yeah, In and Out Burger is amazing. By the way, I've never been. I've never had I, any. I, the, 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 if you're ever in LA, because that's pretty much the only place you'll find it. Well, um, it's very popular in in Los Angeles based films. So, for example, in The Big Lebowski as well, they have a discussion about the In and Out Burger, don't they? Mm. Um, um, do, and it, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, they do. It's like it's by the Inout Burger on on Fifth or whatever. Right. But they also have a similar. It, is it one of the things that uh, Samuel Jackson compares the burger to in Pulp Fiction? The big Kahuna no, the burger? big Kahuna I think is meant to be in an Out Burger, isn't oh, it? Okay, cool. 
So yeah, or, or, or at least somebody somebody suggested that. Um, I've I've heard that suggested. Perfect. Yeah. So I mean, it's something that's very beloved by Los Angeles uh, yeah. people, by Los Angeles writers. Again, this by is... anyone who's uh, visiting Los Angeles, I, yeah. I suppose. So if you are in Los Angeles and haven't had an In and Out Burger, Andrew would recommend it. Oh, and also like um, people was uh, uh, Pink's is like a Los Angeles institution. Um, and so many people have said, don't bother with pinks, that the the hype has been derailed sufficiently to the point that you can go to pinks and it'd be like, this isn't that bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> it started out being this thing where it's like, you have to go to pinks and then people, like, there was a, like a backlash to it. Um, and I think the backlash has been significant enough that, like, people... And my expectations, anyway, were lower. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll, like, I'll have a, a pink... So the lines aren't that long. That um, it definitely overperforms... That it sort of, like, it overperforms yeah, yeah. relative to your expectations. It's a, bit, it, it's, it's a bit busy as a hot dog. Like, although having said that, I do like a Chicago hot dog. Shake Shack do nice ones. And I... I I, th- I think this is the time to announce that I'm stepping away from the 250. Oh, that's right. To, go on, go to, for it. Tell to, us. Share, share the love. To, no, no. I, I don't I, know if you're stepping away. We well, hadn't discussed no, this no, on air. No, this is a, this is, listeners, you're getting my live reaction to this. Um, this I'm, is... I'm, I'm joking. I, I was t- I, I'm playing with the idea of probably, if I am going to do it, by the time this is released, I've probably done it already. I might do a mukbang, like YouTube channel. If you're confused about what mukbang yes, is, it's not what you this. think. <laughs> um, it's it's a it's um it's videos of people eating large amounts of food for 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 the sake of uh, vicarious enjoyment by uh, lovely people. Korean people. And um, and there's also um, do, Andrew. Do, you're a fan of mukbanging, though, right? I am. Okay. Yes. Yeah, is yeah. mukbanging no, the part? Can it be a that's, verb? That's the origination of it. Is 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 that it was a Korean thing where uh, be, be, because a lot of them live live alone, they would uh, pay to watch somebody um, eat. Oh, okay. The cultural and, and, history of mukbanging. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it's not what you think. Um, the the um, and there's also kind of like um, dubious um, claims that it's helpful for um, people uh, dieting or with um, eating disorders. Interesting. And that's uh, a fascinating approach. So the 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 uh, I think with most of these things, it can help some people, but for other people, it it, it either might not help or, <laughs> or, or, or might, might have a negative effect. Might have a negative. I like effect. The, I like exactly. your your I like your sort of wide gamut of opinion. So it, it can do one of three things. It can help. <laughs> Yeah, it can do nothing, or it can I, I, do the I would opposite. I accept the possibility. People say that 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 it helps them, and I have to accept them at their word. But there's <laughs> also been kind of lots of editorial written about. Anyway, all right then. Um, in terms of Reservoir Dogs, there's is there anything else that we want to talk about that we haven't talked about already? Anything we sort of missed? I do oh, like King the Super Sounds. Uh, oh yes, the soundtrack as well, because the soundtrack is the soundtrack is fascinating. Obviously, it's a it's a selection of Tarantino. Songs which were arguably deep cuts at the time, but which I suspect as a result of this movie we've sort yeah, of grown up with. Because these were all movies, songs that he could get the rights to on an independent movie budget. So they weren't songs that were particularly popular, but have somehow become like these these iconic sort of songs that you almost can't hear so, without thinking about the film in question. Like So think of the uh, Steely Dan stuck in the middle with you. 
that got a cover version, which we will include in the show notes, from Louise Fletcher slash Redknapp. I'm not sure whether she was married at the time. In which <laughs> Louise Fletcher plays a sexy version of Mr. Blonde, or a sexier version of Mr. Blonde, who proceeds to offer a razor blade lap dance is probably the best way to describe it to a sexy male model who has been tied to a chair you can imagine how much Darren's face is scrunching yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> on the, the phrase sexy razor sexy razor, razor blade, blade lap, lap dance, dance. Um, if you can imagine that, I think that's that's probably the best way to describe it. It's one of those gonzo relic of the late 90s. Like, if you want to get an example of how big Tarantino's cultural footprint is, Louise Fletcher razor blade lap dance is probably as close as you're going to come that, in terms of, like, reaching the plumbing. That's, the... that's my favourite <laughs> Louise Redknapp song. <laughs> but yeah, Sexy razor blade lap dance. It's stuck <laughs> in the middle with you. We'll include the video in the show notes so you can make your own judgment. sexy razor blade lap dance. I I do like the um I do like the um the the sequence with the um with the razor blade and the dance which may or may not be sexy but the bit where Tarantino follows it because it's all shot handheld camera which means that he can do these nice long takes so he can do stuff like he can pull back obviously from Mr. Pink and Mr. White you know pointing guns at each other to reveal that Mr. Blonde has been there and you have no idea how long he's there but he can do stuff like there's a sequence where he follows Mr. Blonde out of the warehouse out to the trunk of the car to get the kerosene, yes. back into the warehouse. And along the way, the, the music sort of fades into the background. music. Yeah, that fades into the background and fades back. And then obviously later on, there's the moment when he's sort of covered around gasoline and the guy shouts, wait, 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 stop, listen. And the music just cuts suddenly. It, it, like it, it, it blends into the background so that you can barely hear it. It's still there, but it's very much it's Tarantino kind of, playing with the audience's experience of sound in a way that is very clever and very like very playful and sort of speaks to Tarantino's you know sort of general tendency to manipulate and sort of extend audience expectations and you're right as well that these songs have been have become classics like Her- Harvey Keitel's you're gonna be okay you're gonna be okay Tommy you're gonna be okay I need to hear you say it say it (laughs) Harvey Keitel number one with a bullet I know Tim Roth number one with a bullet but yeah there's and Tim Roth is Bobcat Goldthwait on on backing vocals where it's like I'm gonna die I don't feel so good Andrew Um, I love that you're accused Using the movie of being nihilistic while laughing at the idea of Tim Roth bleeding out in the backseat of the car. It's it's, it, they, it's because he sounds he, like I'm not doing a very good Bobcat Goldquaid impression, but he is. <laughs> Just so we're clear, listeners. It's ridiculous. That that that, that, that it, it's supposed it's supposed to be a um a a it's supposed to be something that scene and it isn't because it's so it's so um ridiculous because because come on you can say tone deaf because that's what you're going for with the singing no but it's the sounds that they're that they're both making like and the the, uh, about um tim rock was like ah like i'm i'm going my stomach stomach. she shot me she shot me you'll notice that yeah Um, um, and then and then um uh, like there, it's all very sort of like uh, 
playful almost. And Kaitala is like, you're going to be okay. Okay. It's like Tarantino is like, make crazy choices, people. (laughs) There are no bad choices. There are no bad choices. It's only one take. So Go all in. So go nuts. Yeah. It's like, wait, should we not do it like... Uh, Properly rehearsing. Like as we think we might do it in the real world. Human beings would act in this situation. It's like, no... I, I like the heightened quality of it, but I also quite like the idea of the bloody car sort of being a sort of a ah. setting up, setting up the punchline for the kind of thing that Winston Wolfe would clean up in, in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Isn't there, isn't, um, isn't the police officer's name Marvin? Yes. Yes. And it's also, in terms of the soundtrack as well, something that caught me this time, because it's been a while since I rewatched it, is the, um, the Uga Chaka. Yes. Which is a song that I, I didn't realize at the time, and I probably hadn't picked up the first couple of times that I watched it, but which now, thanks to the wonder of David Hasselhoff, um, Hooked on a Feeling, uh, yeah. is now like, it's, it's a movie that, it's a song that I've just, you know, I feel like the movie, I feel like somewhere David Hasselhoff was watching, like, Reservoir Dogs, and was like, that song right there, I think I could make a hit. And that, it's another thing about how Guardians of the Galaxy doesn't get to do that. Because it's not a deep cut. It's an expensive song that Marvel have paid for. Yeah. So this is not a show about... Uh, this is not a movie about a kid with a mixtape. Um, of songs um, that are um, affordable on a budget of an independent movie yeah, that people yeah. haven't heard before. This, this, is, this is now a big hit. This yeah. is now, yeah. Which is, is interesting. I mean... So you don't get to introduce... <laughs> an entire um, generation. An audience to um, uh, Hooked on a Feeling. Yeah. Uh, after Reservoir Dogs... I've done it 20 years previous. Um, which is, is remarkable. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's that about covers it. I mean, is there anything else in terms of stuff that we haven't talked about? I mean, I do like the juxtaposition. Like, there are a number of really clever structural juxtapositions, which kind of like Tarantino, as a writer, his dialogue tends to attract attention. And there's this perception. And do you want to talk about some of the dialogue we like? Well, we'll talk about some of the dialogue we like, but just in terms of Tarantino's writing, uh, one of the things... One of the stereotypes about Tarantino's writing, and particularly with regards to his recent films, and it came up every single time that we mentioned to somebody that we were discussing Django Unchained, is the idea that Tarantino's writing has become indulgent and gratuitous, and his films are too long and that they need to be ended down. I mean, this is 95 minutes long. We can't talk. Yeah, we can't talk at all. But one of the things that I like about Reservoir Dogs is it has this structure of like callbacks and setups and payoffs and like it building and it's it has its own sense of internal rhythm. I think that somebody and again I had I didn't do as much research for this as I should have. I admit that up front. But one of the more interesting comments I've heard you about Tarantino's in a script, kind of an apologetic way. I am. Like to look a bit behind the curtain. We we found out maybe ten minutes before we watched the movie that we were going to be doing a podcast about it. But anyway, <laughs> um, but one of the interesting arguments I can't place it. I'm not able to place it. Yet. I'll probably find and put we, it in the show we notes. We recorded this immediately after <laughs> uh, the uh, we recorded the Prestige, um, um, and, and <laughs> just, we just hopped right in. And also um, uh, that that Malcolm Gladwell thing was several <laughs> something months, that you listened to ages. Not only several months ago from now when you're listening to it. Well, several months ago from now, when, when we're recording this, 
because... <laughs> this is real, baby. This is real yeah, time. Yeah, we but, recorded this in August, right? Yeah, sometime around then. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the the argument is that Tarantino structures his writing and his films like albums, where there's tempos and rhythms that, that sort of pay up and, and sort of set up and pay off themes, and they move at different speeds, and scenes are kind of, you know, they're slow or they're fast, but they're extended, and they all kind of, they have familiar motifs that run through them and are obviously structured into a single story. And, like, one of the things that I, I... I think that's a very good argument on how he writes. But you get these little echoes that recur even within particular scripts that reveal that, like, Tarantino's a great writer of dialogue. And, and his big innovation was in, in how characters speak within his scripts. And how those... The way the characters speak illuminate character. Like, you can tell everything that you need to know about Mr. Pink from the introductory conversation about tipping... But in a way that isn't like, oh, that Mr. Pink is a stingy, self-obsessed, you know, greedy little so-and-so who doesn't have any consideration for people who aren't himself. But it communicates that very, very effectively. But more than that, his writing is structured in such a way that you get... And this is why I credit that sequence with Mr. Orange shooting the woman as the last flashback before we get to the climax where everybody dies horribly, including Mr. Orange. Why I consider that a moral judgment is because the film is structured so carefully... No, I'm no, I'm not. Don't worry. Okay, sorry. But, like, to pick an example, the sequence in which you have Mr. Orange rehearsing the story that he tells and how that story allows him to infiltrate Joe's gang and how it convinces the other criminals to trust him. Later on, not one or two scenes later, you have a sequence where Eddie does exactly the same thing where he's talking about the story about E. Louise, who glued her boyfriend's penis to his belly. Uh, with superglue and how this is an amazing story and how all the little details that Eddie imbues in this story, like the fact that she looked like that woman from that show that he can't remember who isn't Pam Greer, but how all these instill a sense of realism and allow a sense of bonding between these men. He can't recall any of the details, though. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) so, uh, like... um, he, yet he's the one who's legitimate and that they can trust. <laughs> yeah, which is, again, probably ties it's into... It's like, what did, she, what did he do to her? I don't know, stuff. <laughs> you know, things. Um, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a real vagueness to the story, which suggests that it's probably more authentic than anything that Mr. Orange is peddling. But I quite like that juxtaposition between that story and the story that Orange is telling, because it kind of reinforces that idea in a way that's subtle, in a way that the movie doesn't actually physically point at the scene and say, this is important, this is thematically relevant, this is connected to that. It's just a way that kind of plays through and you notice it when you're watching it sort of casually. Even if I don't think, even if you don't always pick up on it, I think you're acutely aware that Tarantino is playing with this idea kind of subtly in the background. Hmm. But anyway, let's let's talk about, about the dialogue, because the dialogue is fantastic. Yeah, I guess just to kind of like pick a few. I, like, um, I talked earlier on about the... Um the way the way in the forwards and backs um bet- between um blonde and and white, white how how he always seems to 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 get the better of him another example aside from it, it, one one is like oh, i'm sure it was a lovely moment i talked about already it was like when 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 uh, there's the whole thing of like are you going to um are you going to bark all all day little doggy are you going to bite um, and then Pink has to separate them, and there's this whole thing. And then he says, "Oh, that was exciting." <laughs> it's such a it's a, a, a really Unsupri- great kind that, of like funny. That doesn't surprise me that you responded to that line, Andrew. Don't take that as a judgment in any way, shape, or form. No, no, I, 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 I did, <laughs> and that's why I think that uh, like like the the it's very telling in, 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 in a perverse way. We 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 like. 
or I anyway, like... Um, I was about to say that there's something uh, very Blonde telling in the, in the fact that you think the centre of the film is Mr. Blonde, and I'm like, no, the centre of the film is clearly Mr. Orange. Uh, I think there's something very Mr. revealing. Mr. Orange is, is so unlikable. <laughs> so, like, thoroughly unlikable, because the entire movie, he's pretending to, um, to, to be something else, and for no reason that we've established... You, okay, I, um, it's no, okay. I, I'm not yeah. judging you for liking Mr. Blonde, but I'm just saying it's a. I think if you were to ever to, and, uh, and he, he spends most of the movie um, lying crying. in a puddle of his own blood. Yeah, crying, <laughs> and and like I'm not judging him for crying, but if you want to like somebody <laughs> in 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 a movie, don't have them wailing for the entire thing. Again, I feel like this is a very informative difference between myself and Andrew. Andrew's like, go, Mr. Blonde. I'm like, no, Mr. Orange is the moral center of the real film. Man. Yeah, right there he's super macho um, look at him banter that's me in a situation like that <laughs> killing everyone and then being killed and then having an In-N-Out burger having an In-N-Out burger having an In-N-Out burger that really <laughs> that was the moment where he clicked to you <laughs> yeah yeah like I, I, my admiration for him just, just, just grew and the way he died really quickly <laughs> well given the scenarios that we're presented with that's probably the best of the option yeah but yeah. Like, he didn't get what he deserves. If we think this is a moral movie, he's done the worst things. And yet yet he dies, like, in a hurry. Pretty much off screen. It's yeah. only you pan over and see the body afterwards. Exactly. Like. You don't see... Like, it's not like... If it was to be a kind of, like, a comeuppance, <laughs> you wouldn't have... have, have he would have lingered on the yeah. on the brutality of it, perhaps. And he would have realised the folly of his ways. I don't um, think Mr. Blonde would ever realise the folly of his ways. I wonder if some of the stuff about uh, no real people, just cops, kind of sp- is, 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 is speaks to some of Tarantino's, uh, the way he sees um, the police or his relationship between LA and the police in the 90s and now. Well, it should be and noted in, that... And between... Uh, the relationship now that America has with the police in the uh, Black Lives Matter versus the... Um, well, again, this ties back into, say, The Hateful Eight, where he marched with Black Lives Matter yeah. in New York, for example. That's what and I mean. He, and he got... Uh, he, obviously, his, his The Hateful Eight was blacklisted and boycotted by various police unions around the country. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting. I mean, I... I don't know. I'm not a, a sort of Tarantino biographer. I suspect a lot of the consciousness came later on. I that, suspect so too. And that I think it, a very pointed sort of way of like in in Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight and Inglorious Bastards. There's a line that you draw between that overtly political stuff and the stuff that he did earlier on. But maybe it was there gestating. I think you're right that you couldn't be in Los Angeles in the early 90s and I escape think, the shadow of Rodney King. For I example. think he identifies more with outlaws. Like you see something like. Um, didn't he have a writing credit on the... Um, Natural Born Killers, for example. Yeah, and also on... Uh, Crimson Tide? No, no, no. I, I'm sorry, I didn't see how that would relate to <laughs> Yeah, how, but... how would that relate to... The, the uh, George Clooney... Um, oh, Out of Sight? Out, no. <laughs> um, okay. you, George Clooney George outlaw. George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino outlaw movie. Yeah, okay, fine. Well, George, sorry, you mean Dust Till Dawn? Dust Till Dawn, yeah. Okay, well, you've got to give me more. That, like, I feel like I gave you a pretty strong string. Vampires, barring... Salma Hayek's boobies. Not okay. Desperado. Okay, 
And you, you didn't give me any of that. You just gave me, like, I feel like he identifies with outlaws. Okay, he had a script credit on Natural Born Killers. No, 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 that's not it. And then I took a swing at Crimson Tide. No, no, no. Movie with outlaws and George Clooney that's possibly related to a Tarantino film. I'm like, oh, do you mean Out of Sight? In which he uses the character played by Michael Keaton, who also appears right, in Jackie we need Brown. To end the podcast now. Um. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, dust till dawn. He he wrote the script as a favor to to um, Robert Rodriguez, who was his early editor, one of his editors uh, on his early films. Yes. And so yeah, so I feel like he does have an affinity for outlaws from the example that you cited and eventually guided me towards, and also from some of the examples that I cited that we didn't get there, but were wrong because they were not the movie that you were thinking of, despite matching the criteria that you had provided. Sorry, Darren's very catty this evening. <laughs> I love it. It's great. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I, I feel like, yeah, he does have a sort of affinity for outlaws. Again, it's, yeah, it is it is strange because the most moral character in the movie the, is the police officer who gets horribly and brutally murdered. Like the one, as yeah. I point out, like even in Darren's semi-moral construction of Reservoir Dogs, the suffering of that police officer is the thing that I can't account for. The yeah. kind of casual brutality that he endures and, and, and the meaninglessness and, of his death. Yeah, and the fact that he's suffering in spite of having the keys to his... Well, he wasn't going to escape anyway, but yeah, he could He could basically, he could make things easier on himself and, you know, out he Mr. Could, Orange. Yeah. But he doesn't, because that's the right thing to do, even though it leads to him getting brutally tortured. And I mean... Yeah, but it's so, like, it, it's so foolish, um, kind of, in this world to think of, 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 of doing the right thing. Because like there, there, the the kind of world that's created is that there is no reward in this world for um, doing good things. But Andrew, to be <laughs> fair, that it, aren't doing the right isn't doing the right thing its own reward. No, yeah, yeah, but if, I know, if, I know, if, I know. If, if, if the if, film has if, a moral, if, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe, and I think that's probably fair. As I said, that's the one th- detail that I can't account for, and I. You don't end like a uh, morality story by saying, and they all went to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them went to heaven, most of them went to hell. It's like postscript. These are the characters who went to hell. Yeah, you have a little map. It's like one of those police boards where hell is written on one side and heaven on the other. It reminds me of that quote from Vince Gilligan, who wrote like uh, Breaking Bad, which I would also consider a morality play in some way. But Gilligan's observation about his spirituality is that he doesn't know if he believes in heaven, but he absolutely has to believe that there's a hell. Which is an interesting way of looking at it. And I feel like Tarantino is probably quite close to that. In that it feels well, he like... He definitely believes in a hell, because yeah. there's a lot of people he wants to send there. <laughs> yeah. like, they, 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 there's no sort of, um, I guess, moral ambiguity about his later movies. Yeah. Um, Whereas I think at the start there sort of is. And, and I, I, I can see that. I mean, like, I... This is the movie where I would have the hardest argument making a Tarantino is a moralist point. And I feel like I can just about get it, but I can't get past that cop tied to the chair who has his ear chopped off. Yeah. In, in And by the way, it should be pointed out that that sequence, Even which was... when he gets moral in his later movies, it's not in any kind of compassionate sense. No, it's, it's, it's morally righteous and violence. Yeah, it's, yeah. P- these people deserve to suffer. Yeah, and I mean I, that. That keep in mind that's the argument that I'm making with regards to this movie is that most of the people involved deserve to suffer in Tarantino's worldview, and that they're compromised by doing particular things. Yeah, uh, by whether it's by agreeing to be part of this uh, this heist or whether it's by shooting. Anyway, never mind. But the the uh, but again, I I feel like yeah, I can't get past the cop uh, yeah. in terms of that. 
I guess the only thing left to do then is to pick the movie that we are going to talk about next week. Sorry, so Andrew, would you mind firing up the random number generator? There? <laughs> let me let me let me get it going. Random number generator. Twist, twist, twist. Show us a movie on the list. And the movie that we have landed on is number. One eighty one, which is Into the Wild. Oh, Sean Penn. Oh, interesting. Into the Wild, which is yeah, Sean Penn directing the story of is it Chris Carmichael? Chris Carlos? Chris Christopher McCandless. That's the one. The gentleman. Christopher Cordless. Uh, Christopher Canless, the the young boy who disappeared into the Alaskan wilderness to find, I believe he was looking for some sort of spiritual epiphany, but to try to find a new way of living, um, whose body was recovered, not to give too many spoilers. Specifics are very important. Um, (laughs) Sort of, of, yeah. When you're telling a story. Yeah, details. Give as many specifics. It's little details that that matter. Such as the character's name. But he became this sort of cult figure in the 90s where he became this sort of embodiment of like this movement of kind of getting back to nature and sort of reconnecting. And so I think it's it's an interesting, it looks like an interesting film. I've never seen this. So let's take a look at the trailer. This is a movie you have not seen. I know, I make no apologies. No, you sh- th- this makes you seem more human. I want to buy you a new car. Why would I want a new car? That's and runs great. I don't want anything. Everything has to be difficult. There are people in this world who go looking for adventure. Christopher McCandless was searching for himself. So you're a leather now. I'm a leather? Yeah, leather tramp. That's what they call the ones that hoof it. Don't you think you ought to be getting a job and making something of this life? I only got one plan. I'm going to Alaska. Alaska, Alaska? Or city Alaska? I'm going to be all the way out there. Yes, in the wild. What are you doing when we're there? Now you're in the wild. What are you doing? You're just living, man. I read somewhere how important it is in life not necessarily to be strong but to feel strong to measure yourself at least once where are your mom and dad living their lives somewhere do your folks know where you are i wasn't dreaming well i didn't imagine it i heard him i heard him i heard chris son how long have you been out here? A couple of weeks. And before that? I went to South Dakota. I worked for this guy named Wayne. What do you think about all this? I like all this. I took the Colorado River all the way down to the Grand Canyon and did rapids. What's the end stand for? North. You're a great Alaskan adventure. something in life, you jump grab it. 
So, I have not seen this movie, but this does not look like I expected it to look. That um, the per- I think I, I either this movie like I think the person who made that trailer should be taken and shot, and, and then <laughs> possibly like, into the one, wilderness. Yeah, one 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 of one of the credits that came up at the end of the trailer is music by Eddie Vedder. But instead of using music by Eddie Vedder for the trailer, they use... They use um, X-Ray Dog, who are known as the sort of people who provide music to... People uh, who provide music to trailers. trailers. So they did, for example... uh, This is quite similar to the music they would have done for, I think, the Star Trek trailers in 2009. So this one is... Thank you, Andrew. This one is Acts of Courage is how it's known. Uh, yeah, it. Thank you, Tim Roth and uh, and Harvey Keitel for your vocal rendition of that. But it, again, it, the movie makes this look like some sort of rollicking wilderness adventure, which I suspect it isn't. There's from really, what I know about it, uh, really um, horrible as well. Sort of like. Speak. Hallmark movie sort of titles um, like titles it, yeah lose yourself up. yeah and and also there's narration as you probably heard there there's narration voiceover narration where he like he went to find himself um but there's also like cranking which this I find it hard like to a super bad trailer and it, find, it also give it like shows us far more of the movie than we need to see yeah it it seems to cover pretty much everything like i'm i'm roughly familiar with the McCandless story and then i find like i somebody who's interested in the 90s and popular culture but not so interested that i'd see an, an emil hirsch and sean penn movie about it to be fair i don't think it, i my recollection of it was that it wasn't too bad although right. I, 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 I wasn't i wasn't mad about it to be honest when i saw it here's the question though does it have speed cranking like the trailer like moments like the, the little bit where the, the car is driving and then the camera sort of speeds up like the Fast and the Furious. Does no, Sean Penn I'm, direct into the wild like the Fast and Furious, like this trailer leads so. me to believe? I, oh. I think, yeah, but I think Paramount should be <laughs> uh, a of themselves. And I think Sean Penn has has a case for taking like some sort of action, <laughs> action. against... Uh, legal action, to be clear, given Sean Penn's purchase for taking <laughs> extra legal action. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back next week when we'll be discussing... Um, extra legal is a nice word for it. <laughs> We're discussing Into the Wild. In the meantime, Andrew, do you, where can we find you online and is there anything that you would like to plug? Is there anything you'd like to point people's attention towards on the internet? Um, or I don't know. I don't know when people will be listening to this. It's possible that I'll be um, eating large amounts of food. You'll be mukbanging the hell out of it. Yeah. On, ugh, yuck. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm talking, Getting your mukbang on? Um, uh, so there's that, yeah. Um, M- mukbanging I'll, I'll finally have something to promote. Um, but you're making me question this decision, Darren. So every time at the end of every episode, we're going to plug your mukbang. Um, yes. Can we just call it your YouTube channel or something? We... That said, I I feel like plugging your mukbang is something that we are... <laughs> what, what if, like, um, I've, um, I've, I've my mukbang now on Twitch... <laughs> Does yeah. that sound good? That sounds better. Um, are you plugging your mukbang on Twitch? Um, 
It's 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 twitching right now. Okay, um, you should probably see a doctor on that front. In the meantime, you can follow me online at Darren underscore Mooney. I write at the movie blog. I also co-host the Scanlon podcast, um, and I've written a book, Opening the X Files, which is available from all good bookstores and online. Uh, you can order a copy, uh, or you can buy it as a Kindle ebook. If you're at all interested in some of the stuff we were talking about earlier in terms of '90s and and the meaning and memory, I sort of look at a bit of those themes through the lens of Chris Carter's sort of existential sort of '90s paranormal television show. Um, in the meantime, you can it's- find. Scooby Doo. Where are you? Can do. Yeah. But Chris Carter can is smarter. Ah, I like it. I see what you did there. Thought you were going to say you can barter a better season deal. You, you say it like I, I. This is just a Simpsons reference. It is. It is. Yeah. Sorry. Continuing our trend of 90s references, 90s pop culture references. Um, in the meantime, you can follow the 250 online at the 250, spelt using real letters. You can follow us on Stitcher, on iTunes, uh, on SoundCloud. Uh, you can subscribe via virtually any service whatsoever. Uh, if you like us, please feel free to leave oh, yeah, a positive review. Let us review. know if you have any problems listening to it as well. Yeah, if you do have any problems with any service providers, uh, let us know and we'll see if we can figure out a way to get that working again. Uh, we'll be back next week when we'll be talking about Into the Wild. But then again, if you have any problems... You this probably thing. won't be able to hear this. Yeah. This is this is a dilemma. This is sort of like now we're stuck in that 90s meaning sort of loop. Yeah. If you can hear this message, <laughs> as Christopher <laughs> McCandless might say, um, uh, then, then, try, then try on another podcast app and see if you can also hear this message there. All right. Take it easy, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.